Hi there, and welcome to Pick 6 Movies. If you've been here before, you know how all this works, but if you're new, let me show you around the place. This is Pick 6 Movies, a podcast where each season we select six movies that are all related to one theme. Then on each episode, we explore the people in front of and behind the camera to try to make sense out of how and why each movie was made. But that's not all. After that, we give you a detailed review of the entire movie to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with a delightfully charming friend of mine, Mr. Bo Ransdell, we are working our way through this season's theme, You Can Do It, featuring six movies all about one thing, S-E-X. This is episode five out of our six-episode run, and in this episode, we are discussing Basic Instinct, a crime thriller that was wildly successful thanks in part to one of the most famous scenes in motion picture history. But a little more on that later. Basic Instinct is a movie from a bygone era featuring a tough-as-nails cop who breaks all the rules to get the job done alongside a doughy partner who is just a few weeks away from retirement as they work to unravel a murder mystery whodunit in between car chases, gratuitous nudity, gun battles with drug dealers, your obligatory visits to a neon light bathed nightclub, lots of false leads on who the killer might be, and a soundtrack woefully filled with saxophone and electric guitar riffs. This is a supersized episode, I'm not going to lie to you. So you know what? Go grab an ice pick, chisel some chunks of ice off that big block of ice in the freezer, pour yourself a stiff drink, and enjoy Bo's introduction to Basic Instinct. Keep your knees together. You're a lady for God's sake. If you wanted something dark and fun at the cinema in March of 1992... The pickings were slim. Sure, you could check out the Rodney Dangerfield soccer movie Ladybugs, and who wouldn't want that? Or maybe the bedroom farce Noises Off, the adaptation of a stage play by acclaimed filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich and starring Michael Caine. Not exactly the kind of grown-up thing we're looking for, though. Oh wait, here's something. Basic Instinct. The story of a no-good detective and the sultry femme fatale he's mixed up with in the investigation of a rock star's murder. That sounds like something we could do an introduction about. And apologies in advance for use of the word vulva. But hey, this ain't ladybugs we're talking about. It's lady parts. That's right, the movie that wore out the pause button on a generation of BCRs has now gained the attention of Pick 6 Movies. So let's light a smoke. Tilt those Venetian blinds and get downright noiry. Basic Instinct was first written as an original screenplay by the very successful Joe Esterhaz. Esterhaz was a Hungarian immigrant, a first-generation arrival to the most glorious of American cities, Cleveland. He spent a good portion of his childhood in some of these relatively poor immigrant neighborhoods, but young Joe had a knack for the written word and making things up. In fact, Joe worked for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where he interviewed a woman who lived near a recently collapsed bridge, detailing her poverty and her mood surrounding the collapse. Only he didn't. Talk to her, I mean. Turns out, Joe talked to the kids when the mother wasn't home and made the shit up. 
Sorry, I apologize for the foul language, but this is the basic instinct intro. You have to expect some spikes. Anyway, this motherfucker, sorry, went all the way to the Supreme Court and the poor woman who was never interviewed was finally awarded $60,000 in damages. Undeterred by something as simple as ethics, Joe Esterhaz turned his ambitions toward that land of milk and honey where nobody gave two runny goo shits, sorry again, about the veracity of what you wrote. Hollywood. Well, first he wrote for Rolling Stone for a while and piled up some bad habits and good stories and then he came to Hollywood where he penned the Sylvester Stallone labor movie, Fist. After that, he wrote Flashdance, a movie I'm surprised we haven't covered yet, about a woman who works as a welder by day and dancer by night, as played by The Bride's Jennifer Beals. See our previous episode for more on that. He then wrote the noirific Jagged Edge, featuring Jeff Bridges and Glenn Close, then a few movies nobody cares about, like Big Shots and Hearts of Fire and Checking Out. See, I told you you don't care. While he was cleaning out his literary sock drawer, Esterhaas was seized by a burst of inspiration. By all accounts, he cranked up some Rolling Stones tunes, one presumes went on to do a molehill of cocaine, and then wrote a script entitled Love Hurts in 13 Days. The script was retitled Basic Instinct, and it was the subject of a bidding war for the rights in the late 80s. Essentially, a bunch of studios all wanted to make this movie, what with it being all murdery and twisty and all, and he ended up selling the screenplay, written in less than two weeks, mind you, for a tidy $3 million, the highest any screenwriter had been paid at that point, and placing him in the realm of the Shane Blacks of the world, the guy who wrote Predator and a bunch of action films. Esther Haas was the proverbial cock of the walk. The movie was bought by a company called Carol Co., it was a production company that gained prominence in the 80s for making all those Rambo movies, along with the Terminator films. They lined up veteran producer Irvin Winkler to shepherd the project, and everything was ready to go for production. Carol Co. even found a bankable star in Michael Douglas, who was a big deal. A few years before, he'd done his star turns in Romancing the Stone and its sequel, Jewel of the Nile, then scored big with another psychosexual thriller, Fatal Attraction, the movie Tom Hanks said scared the hell out of every man in America in Sleepless in Seattle. Then he became eternally quotable by speaking the line, greed, for lack of a better word, is good, for Oliver Stone's Wall Street. While Michael Douglas was a pretty good get, the producer of the movie, Irvin Winkler, was told only later that a deal was struck with Douglas. Then, after Esther Haas and Winkler proposed Milos Forman for the director, the guy who'd done Amadeus and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, among other films, Carol Co. again went past the producer to court Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven was another immigrant, but he hadn't come to America until he was almost 50 years old. He'd been doing just fine for himself as a film director in the Netherlands. Oscar nominee Paul Verhoeven. Sounds weird, right? But in 1973, he was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film with Turkish Delight. He didn't make an American film until 1985, the medieval drama Flesh Plus Blood with Rutger Hauer and Jennifer Jason Leigh. His next film for American audiences would be Robocop, a terrific and terrifically violent tale of a cyborg cop fighting the men who killed him. A few years later, he did Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, another giant hit, and then came Basic Instinct. 
Verhoeven wanted to do something Hitchcockian and marry his own visual and thematic sensibilities to something classically noir. He was known in his home country for not shying away from nudity or graphic representations of the human form, but that's for Europe. This is America, pal, and we like our genitals covered, thank you very much. Esterhaz was worried too. When he met with the director over dinner, Esterhaz realized that Verhoeven intended to take the neo-noir mystery and turn it into something more sexual in its depictions. Esterhaz was quoted as saying, I viewed my script as a psychosexual thriller with erotic content, but I didn't want to turn it into porn. In his book Hollywood Animal, Joe said, All the scenes in the script with any nudity had a descriptive tagline. It is dark. We can't see clearly. In addition to his issues with nakedness, Esther Haas was being pushed out over details in the script. Verhoeven reportedly asked on a number of occasions what the script was about. When Esther Haas told him it was about evil and the sexual manipulation and homicidal impulses that tug at our darker natures, Verhoeven, quote, looked at me blankly. And there was also star Michael Douglas chiming in, asking where the redemption for his character was, fundamentally misunderstanding what a noir film is about. Verhoeven took the dictatorial stance that he was the director and Joe Esterhaus was the writer and Joe would do whatever the hell he was told. Sorry. Esterhaus made an attempt to buy the rides to his work back from Carolco, who told him to take a hike, and so he did. He and producer Irvin Winkler left the project that had paid Esterhaus handsomely only to toss him aside when an alpha male director took over. Don't feel too bad for Joe. We'll get back to him, and in true noir fashion, there are no heroes in this tale. With actor Michael Douglas down to play our hero detective in the film, they needed their Catherine Trammell, the fatale of our story. The list of actresses approached to play the part is staggering. Deborah Winger, Ellen Barkin, Demi Moore, Gina Davis, Emma Thompson, Kelly Lynch, Kim Bassinger, Michael Douglas's preferred actor, by the way, Julia Roberts, Melanie Griffith, Greta Scacchi, Isabella Johnny, another Douglas selection, Lena Olin, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Notably, Pfeiffer referred to the script as, quote, disgusting, and Gina Davis declared that the script's gender politics were too extreme for her comfort. Enter Sharon Stone, an actress Verhoeven worked with previously on Total Recall. She was Arnold's wife, the one who later tries to kill him. Stone had been relegated to B-work, playing a sidekick to Richard Chamberlain in those Alan Quartermain movies, or bit parts in television movies like Badlands 2005 and Tears in the Rain. In 1990, in a last-ditch effort to get someone in Hollywood to pay attention, anyone to pay attention, Stone posed for Playboy, ahead of her performance in Basic Instinct. She was actually pretty close to hanging all that acting stuff up and maybe go to law school. And then she had an opportunity to place herself in the running for the role in Basic Instinct, a role she was, by Hollywood standards, not a big enough star to play. She'd even had a copy of the script for months and hadn't even bothered to read it, knowing full well it was way out of her league. But she had a date with Verhoeven, recording some lines for the airline version of Total Recall, and Stone went all out. She dressed to the nines, put her hair up in a French braid, and adopted a cool elegance she believed Catherine Trammell would possess, and between her chilly, confident demeanor and knockout outfitting, Stone proved to Verhoeven she could play the part. Michael Douglas, not so much. 
Douglas expected a big name star, not some B actress who showed her jigglies in Playboy. Douglas said, quote, I thought, all right, I'll handle this, but I want someone of equal stature to share the risks. Equal stature you can read as a big star like Meg Ryan, easy to mistake his casual dismissal of Stone's relative human worth. Also, he said this after the movie had come out. You know what? Fuck Michael Douglas. Sorry for the language. Also, Joe Esterhaz was brought back into the fold after Verhoeven hired a screenwriter named Gary Goldman to help with rewrites. Apparently, Verhoeven and Goldman were looking to beef up the affair between Roxy and Catherine, and oh, by the way, Michael Douglas still wants his redemption, and they tried their damnedest, sorry, to get a scene of Catherine and Roxy doing what comes naturally between two women, when written by dudes, wedged somewhere in the film. When they realized no matter where they put such a scene, the movie kind of ground to a halt, and Verhoeven sent Esterhaz a copy of the shooting script they had now settled on. According to Esterhaz, it was, word for word, the script he'd first sold. So, now we've got a script, we've got our director, with Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone on board as the leads, Verhoeven cast Gene Triplehorn in the role of Beth. Originally, Anne Archer, who played the wife in Fatal Attraction, was going to be Douglas's shrink in the movie, but the newcomer was hired at Douglas's suggestion. I point out, apropos of nothing, that Gene Triplehorn was 16 years younger than Ann Archer. Weird. There are some really great character actors that round out this cast. George Zunza plays Michael Douglas's partner, and he's done a lot of work, but maybe most in the 90s when he was in Crimson Tide and Dangerous Minds. Actor Chelsea Ross is the police captain, who's kind of a jerk. He was that funny jerk in Major League and the less funny jerk in Hoosiers, but I bet he's nice. Wayne Knight gives a particularly sweaty turn as a fellow officer who gets a peek at Sharon Stone. He's best known as the ah 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 guy from Jurassic Park, or maybe Newman on Seinfeld. And longtime bright spot of many movies, Stephen Tobolowski, drops by as a psychiatrist. He was Ned Ryerson. And the crew is no slouch either. Jan DeBont, who would direct Speed later on, serves as a cinematographer here. Jan DeBont is not much of a director, but he was maybe the best working cinematographer of his day, particularly when it comes to action films. He shot Die Hard and The Hunt for Red October and Lethal Weapon 3 and Ruthless People and The Jewel of the Nile, and he worked with Verhoeven on Flesh Plus Blood most recently. I also like to point out that his first TV movie was called Bah September. Those wacky Dutch. And we can't discuss this movie without discussing The Shot. And let's just get this over with. This movie became synonymous with a brief shot of Sharon Stone's vulva, or the outer part of the female genitalia consisting of the labia majora, or outer lips, and the inner lips, or labia minora, and the clitoris, which is not real. The shot came at the end of the day of filming. Most of the non-essential crew were gone, and the actors we see getting all hot and bothered they were gone too. Their reactions were already in the can. Sharon Stone was wearing a pair of white underwear, which Verhoeven said was causing issues with reflected light. He asked if Stone would remove them. She did, and the shooting continued. Now we get into dispute territory. So we'll offer up first Sharon Stone's version of events. Verhoeven did not suggest the angle of the camera would be so low. The scene would be a tease, a suggestion. She had no idea what Verhoeven shot until a screening 
when the sudden appearance of her privates shocked and surprised her. This much is not disputed, though. At a screening, Sharon Stone did smack Paul Verhoeven right in the chops. He later claimed her outrage was ginned up by her publicist and that Stone had known all along what was happening on the day of the shoot. But speaking of things getting one in the mouth, Buzz was already brewing before the film's release that Basic Instinct was something special. It was naughty. It was taboo. It was definitely not the kind of movie you wanted to see with decent people, except everyone wanted to see it. You get to see her pussy? That's what I hear. Sorry. In this movie, budgeted at under $50 million, 15 of which went to Michael Douglas, raked in $352 million worldwide. Oh, and Sharon Stone, who showed the world her vagina, she got $500,000 for the effort. Thanks for showing up, kid. Keep it tight, huh? While we're talking about trims, sorry, it took about eight passes to the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, to get Basic Instinct down to an R from an NC-17. Verhoeven initially wanted to release it with the taboo rating, but when someone pointed out that the movie could make far more money if it were shown in more theaters, and NC-17 movies would not be shown in many theaters at all at the time, Verhoeven found it within himself to relinquish his artistic vision and cut out some fucking. Sorry. He used some different angles and cheated some shots, bringing an intensely graphic film down to being merely very graphic. He did release his director's cut in Europe and later in the States on DVD if you wanted to up the porn quotient in the film. One group that was decidedly unhappy about the movie and its success were groups of LGBT advocates who had gotten leaked copies of the script ahead of the release. Considering that much of cinema history is littered with lesbian characters determined to seduce and defile upstanding straight women, or were dangerous killers, see every movie that Hammer films made between 1963 and 1975, another portrayal of a gay or bi character as being a violent psychopath, well, let's just say it wasn't sensitive. Stalwart, Pick 6 critic Roger Ebert said at the time, quote, the movie's protesters might take note of the fact that this film's heterosexuals, starting with Douglas, are equally offensive. Still, there is a point to be made about Hollywood's unremitting insistence on typecasting homosexuals, particularly lesbians, as twisted and evil, end quote. Kind of bearing the lead there, Raj. The movie did well at the box office, it did well on home video, and everyone was riding that basic instinct high. Esther Haas and Verhoeven teamed up immediately thereafter for Showgirls, more on that later. Michael Douglas went on to star in a number of successful films, like Falling Down and Disclosure and other movies where he plays a repressed creep. Sharon Stone got the stardom she always wanted. She got sexy again in Sliver, then worked with some great directors like Sam Raimi and Barry Levinson and Martin Scorsese. But something about Basic Instinct stuck with her. She was one with that film, that shot. And it's a cruel irony, if you believe Miss Stone, that a shot she did not agree to and was horrified by, that was the thing that gave her everything she ever wanted. You know, let's end where we begin with Joe Esterhaz, our artist who left the production to stand up for his art. He had some regrets later about the film, especially after he was diagnosed with throat cancer after years of smoking, not to mention advertising smoking in the film Basic Instinct. He wrote that smoking shit, sorry, into the script for his characters and had such an impact a brand of cigarettes called Basic was introduced after the release of Basic Instinct. 
but his regret does not extend to speaking well of the woman who made Basic Instinct a hit. After the movie was released, Esterhaz and Stone had a one-night fling. We know that because he said this in his autobiography, Hollywood Animal. Quote, I'm glad I nailed her, though. Not because nailing her felt all that good, it was okay, but because as a result of Sharon Stone's presence in my life, I met and married Naomi, my one true love. And then added, quote, I figured that since I had written the biggest hit of her life for her, she was just saying thank you. And I knew that Sharon thought she was flattering me that night by treating me as if I were the director, she wouldn't sleep with Verhoeven, and not a screenwriter, but still. Basic Instinct had been the number one box office hit of the year, in the whole world. I felt I deserved her. You know what? Fuck you, Joe Esterhaz. Not sorry. Ugh, smoke them if you got them. It's 1992's Basic Instinct. here we have it uh this is episode five of season six of pick six movies of course uh you can do it is uh the the premise of this season um i'm bo ranstall with me as always the lovely the talented uh the overly emotional uh chad cooper how are you sir bo i'm doing very well i always enjoy the penultimate episode of any season that we do let's do this if you're gonna do a a a season about sexy movies i felt like basic instinct was a gimme yes good bad or indifferent it had been years and years since i'd seen it you know i saw when it, it like hit home video i think i saw it in the theater I don't think I did. I don't have, I don't remember that, but you know, let's face it. The early twenties for me are a bit blurry. Well, you were, you, you were 18 or 19. Uh, it's all, all the same. <laughs> and it, uh, basically I, I remember learning how to ride a bike and right now, uh, <laughs> 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 that one's for Andy. So anyway, so yeah, basic instinct was a gimme and having watched it again, it really kindled the fire of excitement for this movie for me. So, uh, with your permission, sir, we're just going to jump into it by all means. We open up with this kaleidoscope kind of shot of bodies moving, little glimpses of bodies moving to let you know, like, we're in for a sexy good time or something. You kind of get bored with it, and then you're like, are people having sex in the background? I hope so. Right. It's like the treatment they gave to Eyes Wide Shut, you know, when when that movie came in too sexy and they were like, put a plan in front of it or something. And it was really weird to see Rob Bottin's name in the credits, like the guy who worked on The Thing. Like he made some of the greatest practical effects ever in movies. And now he's reduced to like softcore porn. There are a lot of names in the opening credits that you're like, what are you doing slumming around this part of town? Jerry Goldsmith? Did the sure. music for this film? Yeah, the music is one of the best parts of the movie. <laughs> the 
music carries this movie. He's one of those super composers. He did all those Star Trek films. He did The Omen, uh, Planet of the Apes, not that Tim Burton mistake, but the good one. He did Alien, Chinatown, Poltergeist. I mean, Goldsmith is as good as it gets. I mean, look, he's not John Williams or Hans Zimmer. Don't get me wrong. But look, he is amazing at the work that he's delivered, top to bottom. Definitely a step above old Hank Mancini. I like how the movie starts proper. And the camera pans down from a ceiling mirror above a bed. (laughs) By the way, not the only bedroom ceiling mirror we see in this film. No, 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 no. (laughs) We are dealing with a a class of swingers, Shad, that you and I have no business (laughs) even discussing. It's a real 1990s on-screen sex scene. You don't get sex like this in movies these days. Not in, like, big-budget Hollywood blockbusters. Or in life, Chad. Like, (laughs) this is the kind of, like, stylized fucking that is reserved for porn films and, and when Hollywood decides to dip their toe into porn films. In this scene, we see a blonde woman whose face we cannot see. Hmm. That's odd. And she's on top of her male suitor. She's riding him, front cowgirl, not reverse cowgirl. And she's really having a good time. And then she sticks her fingers <laughs> into his mouth and uh-huh. he kind of he kind of nom nom noms them, which where do you think those fingers were before they went into his mouth? You know what? Strike that question from the record. You're a witness counsel. Uh your honor, objection. Uh, clearly it was his ass at least once. <laughs> sustained our blonde mystery woman (laughs) pulls a white scarf out and she ties her gentleman sex partner's hands to this wrought iron headboard and things start getting s-e-x-x-y i mean we're like here we go i came to the movies i paid my six dollars and 25 cents to see on-screen crazy sex and they deliver out of the gate man i gotta tell you i watched when i did my notes for it the director's cut oh i'm so sorry this is one of the scenes that they had to cut for the mpaa and so as she is fucking him in this scene as as you pointed out ford cowgirl thumb up the butt uh no but it is it's a little more raw it's it's a slightly different angle on it where it's just like holy god she is getting in there spoilers not to get ahead of us too far out comes a, an ice pick and there's this really graphic moment where she starts bringing the ice pick down and it like stabs him in the neck and in the cheek and then one goes right in the eye is that the worst way that sex could possibly end because until <laughs> oh, no. i saw this movie i thought having your grandmother walk in or maybe crying until your partner left the room in shame you know or, you know what you know what? one more if you shit the shits <laughs> That would be pretty bad. I was afraid you were going to leave that one for me to say. (laughs) I'm glad you took the hit on that one because that's the absolute worst. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, a lot of explanation because the crying is a given at that point. (laughs) Then your your grandmother walks in. (laughs) Baby, you need me to clean your sheets? Yes, Grammy. Send your girlfriend home. I'll clean up your bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) You and I were raised by grandmas. You know when I hear that, when I hear that sound, I know I need to get you a fresh pair of sheets. You best roll on off that bed. 
You can keep up what you're doing. That's doggy style. Me and your grandfather did that around the war. Mm-hmm. Hucklebuck, backside, up, down. You know, we got it all. The point being, as she's as she's stabbing this guy, this is another point where it was an extended scene. Because... As she's stabbing him, there is a good couple of seconds of her just riding him as as the ice pick is coming down in a way that is enthusiastic. It was something. It, like, it made the movie kind of better because of how violent it was as well as, as being, you know, let's be honest, titillating. It, you know, it's a good looking lady. I don't understand biology or science or just basic math for the most part, but I would think if you're stabbing someone this much releasing blood via an alternate path that the amount of blood that is engorging the male sex organ would diminish thereby preventing the female partner from extracting as much delight as you've described look i i'm not saying it's realistic chad i'm saying it made for a good a good scene (laughs) and a good you know few minutes alone so it's it's the next day right and our heroes question mark are showing up at the scene of the crime yeah they show up in a nice 1990s unmarked police car and it's (laughs) to investigate this murder of this sex crime it needs the words unmarked police car spray painted on the side like (laughs) from running scared it's it's that car just sans spray paint is all out of this brown sedan pops michael douglas and He's really in his most Michael Douglasness in this movie. He's got his partner, uh, Detective Gus, and who's kind of a fat cop partner. Gus is played by uh, George Zunza. Uh-huh. I knew him from the original seasons of Law and Order, and he's one of those character actors. He's been around forever, and he's just vanilla and lovable and perfect for this movie as the fat sidekick detective to Michael Douglas. He is one of my favorite characters, and all of my favorite characters are not the main characters. <laughs> His character starts out in one place, but throughout the entire film, he slowly becomes a cowboy towards uh-huh. the end of it. And it's like he made this decision about 20% into filming. And he was like, you know what? Give me that hat. Give me yeah. that vest. I'm, I'm going to be a cowboy. I like that Gus is fat in this movie. And there are really no other fat people. This was at a time where high fructose corn syrup had not been introduced into tap water. He's just, he's old school fat. He's just fat because he's fat. Yeah, it's him and Wayne Knight are the two uh, chubbies in this movie. And they're famous chubbies. Like, they are they came from a time where it was like, oh, yeah, the fat actor. There's only three of them. Stephen First was busy th- this week, apparently. Otherwise, you would have had the trifecta. <laughs> Michael Douglas and Fat Detective Gus, they enter into this home. And we find out that the murder victim was someone named Johnny Boz, who was this fading rock and roll superstar from a bygone era. And they enter the house, which is full of what appears to be like these African artifacts. He does have a a hefty amount of cocaine. Yes. Which is always good to see in your fading rock stars. Um, Michael Douglas announces his presence in this movie by awkwardly turning on the stereo while everyone's conducting an investigation.
station. And they're just like, hey, man, turn the shit off. Oh, sorry. Guys, while you're investigating a crime, who wants to listen to some, some greatest hits of the 60s and 70s? How do you turn this on? It's like, like, don't fear the reaper. Oh, sorry, guys. After they get him to shut off the stereo, they're like, hey, check this out. Look at all the cum stains on the sheets. And I don't know what the purpose of this was investigatively, other than it was just like, hey, check this shit out, man. This guy, like, came gallons. And in fact, they they comment on the movie. They're like, Michael Douglas says, like, oh, that's impressive. And... (laughs) It's like, yeah, it is, man. This guy was a faucet, apparently. Or he never washed his bed sheets. Oh, I guess uh, this could be cumulative cum, <laughs> which I I'm guess thinking. is the Latin for cumulative. Um, so <laughs> as they're investigating the room, they get the the name and address of Johnny Boz's girlfriend, Catherine Trammell, who is played by Sharon Stone. Yes. They are told, like, get the fuck out of here. Go interview her and see where she was and what was going on uh, at the time of the murder. And by the way, you have a three o'clock appointment, Michael Douglas. Don't miss it. With Dr. Beth. We'll talk all about her later. We'll get to Dr. Beth. So then we follow uh, Fat Gus and Michael Douglas to this really nice house and uh, Maid lets him in. I think that that this Maid is intriguing because we only see her once when she opens the door to let them in and then we never see her again <laughs> she's the the next one killed it's just you know it's one of those situations where the police just don't look into it as much because she was an immigrant they get into this house and gus waddles and gus seems like the kind of guy who would keep jelly in his pockets in case of emergency <laughs> Yeah, peanut butter in one Ziploc baggie, jelly in another. No, not even in baggies. It's just, he just (laughs) stuffs it in there. (laughs) Free floating in his pockets. (laughs) Hey, check it out. It's like Goober Grape, man. I go, left hand, right hand. It's just a PB&J without the bread. A blonde woman comes walking down the stairs. And we are to think that this is Sharon Stone's character, but it's not. It's uh, it's Roxy. Uh, Michael Douglas says, like, who are you? And Roxy's <laughs> like, I'm her friend. Uh, which means that Roxy is her lesbian lover. And this movie, uh-huh. as you noted in the introduction, does not do any favors to the lesbian community. <laughs> no, it is treated as an aberration at best. All of this is just shot through the prism of like dude brain on coke. So it's just like, they're real sexy, but also they need some dick. Basic Instinct really deserves credit for putting lesbianism in the spotlight and then handing it an ice pick and a film where it can stab heterosexual cocaine-fueled white men in the head and show a completely reasonable and wholly accurate portrayal of unstable sexuality. You know, as God, as God intended. Do you think Pat Robertson gave this movie a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Because the, the, my thought was he gave it a thumbs up for the portrayal of the lesbians as the unholy spawn of the devil that they are, but then he gave it a thumbs down for all of the fucking and the sexy going-ons in the movie. And the drug. Yeah, I think it's a big thumbs down at the end of the day, <laughs> which is a shame because I think that uh, if anyone deserves the kind of fucking this movie portrays, it's it would be your Pat Robertson's. <laughs> Roxy says, hey, you two are looking for Sharon Stone. She's down at the beach house. She's not up here at the mansion. Then she adds like a PS of like, hey, by the way, Catherine didn't kill John Boz. And they're like, 
how'd you know he was dead? And, and she's like, because you two dumbasses just told me you were homicide detectives. And if you, this is the quality investigation we can expect out of you two for this movie, we're in for a rough ride. The detectives in this movie are collectively the biggest group of dum-dums you've ever seen in a movie this side of ben affleck's batman roxy is like go check out sharon stone and they they hop on the pacific highway which is lovely uh they go to the beach house which by the way is just mansion number two on the beach and they're like a couple of fancy sports cars parked outside and that kind of thing and you know immediately michael douglas is like Ooh la la! Get a load of this joint! He wanders around back. Maybe they have an open window. They go back and there's... The house is overlooking the ocean and then they find Sharon Stone smoking a cigarette. And then when they roll up, she turns around and there are these two strangers and she doesn't have a look of, oh my God, I'm gonna die. They're gonna murder me in my own backyard. She's just kind of like, hey, check out these two assholes. Because her character in this entire film is the one person who does not give two shits about what anybody else thinks <laughs> does says or feels and i want to yeah. say having watched this a few times to prepare for this episode she's really really good in this movie i 100 percent agree that sharon stone is singularly the best thing about the movie sharon stone listens to our show every week and we just want to say you are fantastic in this movie Right. Don't listen to the episode on Catwoman. <laughs> She's just smoking. She's like, yeah, what do you assholes want? I like that she flicks her cigarette off the balcony into the ocean because only you can prevent forest fire, Sharon Stone. <laughs> Michael Douglas says, I'm Detective Michael Douglas. And this is Detective Fat Gus, my stereotypical fat partner who will most likely die later in the movie. The look he gives, Fat Gus, I mean. First Sharon Stone, like, look at her. <laughs> and then at Michael Douglas. And then the look that he is giving Michael Douglas says, look, partner, I wish you the best of luck because she is so out of my league, I ain't even trying. <laughs> and it's so heartbreaking because it, it, he's <laughs> right. He's right. Gus ha does not stand a fucking chance. He puts a fighter point on this later in the movie. But from the very first time he sees her, he's like, nope, not for you, Gus. Guess it's just you and a Boston cream pie tonight. I like that when Michael Douglas introduces himself, he says like, hi, I'm Detective Michael Douglas. And then Sharon Stone says, I, I know who you are. Which my thought was, that's how I should address every introduction in my life going forward. When someone's like, my, my name is Donald Smith. Oh, yes, Donald Smith. I know who you are. Because it just keeps him on their toes. Like, what the fuck? Like, how does this guy know him? We just met. No, no, no. I've done my research. These two wonderkins are like, how did you know we were coming? And she's like, you talked to my girlfriend on a stair. You don't remember what happened 15 minutes ago? How could she contact you before we drove here? Fat Gus, get a warrant. She's an alien. I think she might be a witch. Or a wizard. Pull up her dress. Wait, 
Maybe later. <laughs> they start talking to Sharon Stone about, they're like, hey, your boyfriend, Johnny Boz. Uh, and she's like, how was he murdered? And then Michael <laughs> Douglas says, with an ice pick. Sharon Stone has this look of, hmm, well, that's certainly a British murder weapon if I've ever heard of one before. <laughs> like, how queer. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, huh, ain't that a goddamn thing? <laughs> and then they're yeah, they're asking her, like, well, you know, he was your boyfriend. She was like, he wasn't my boyfriend. We were just fucking. And they're like, oh, my goodness. Heavens to Betsy. Gus is like, what What are you, a pro? Yeah, and, and her line is, oh, no, I'm an amateur. She tells him, like, look, I'm not going to go downtown unless you arrest me, and you can fuck off. And off they fuck, because they're like, all right, if that's how you want to play it. Then in their car, there's this pointless scene where they just kind of look at each other like, huh, boy, she was quite a pill. Michael Douglas makes his way back to police HQ, and he enters the office of Dr. Beth played by Janine Triplehorn. And in this movie, she it, a lot of the time, she's wearing these 1990s eyeglasses that are like great big and round. She looks like she's a child detective in these glasses. Like She should be with Encyclopedia Brown <laughs> running around uh-huh. trying to catch Bugs Meanie up to no good. Michael Douglas comes into her office and he's like, Look, Beth, how long are we going to keep doing this? It's bullshit. I'm Michael Douglas and things are fine. <laughs> Then he says, he's like, my sex life isn't that great since I quit having sex with you. And then he holds up his hands and he's like, I started developing calluses. You are masturbating so much that you have calluses on your hand and you're trying to win this woman back. Look, first off, that type of confession to this type of problem is really, really complicated. In fact, I was like, wouldn't the calluses be on your dick and not on your hand or I don't understand how any of this works. Oh, the dick is an oozing mess. The calluses make it worse. In this scene, after he talks about jerking off so much he has calluses, Dr. Beth just lets out this sigh that is filled with disgust. And you're like, well, she's clearly (laughs) done with this guy. But that's not the case because she's all goo goo gaga for him for the whole damn movie. By the way, he lets it drop because she's like, hey, how long uh, since your last drink, boozy? He's like, three months. And I gave up the smoking, too. It makes me so mad. Three months, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he is not improving. Well, then she also says, how about the Coke? And he's like, no, I'm not doing any cocaine. Why? What have you heard? What have you got? Let me just pause our conversation right now. Dr. Beth, for those of you who've never seen this film, is the killer in the whole movie. And I just want to, with Bo's permission, I just want to say this up front, that she's the one who has murdered everyone and is up to no good. Despite the last shot of the film, that's bullshit. She's the one who's killed everybody because leading up to the very final shot, there is a mountain of evidence that she is the murderer who has killed everyone. Right, because the other premise is, and I and I disagree with this premise. I, I do think that, look, we'll get into Basic Instinct too. I've got a PS on the back end of this. <laughs> I don't. Up to the very last moments where it's like, the movie tries to tell you that Sharon Stone has been orchestrating everything so carefully down to a crazy amount of detail. It makes more sense for the movie for me that the twist is just, hey, it turns out that it's Beth, and then we tell on this stupid last shot that don't mean nothing. There's no way in this film and that what they show us that Sharon Stone's character is the one who is the murderer. You cannot map that narrative out. 
out. Yeah, and I feel like there's kind of an emotional beat. Oh, this is her turning the corner from being just a femme fatale and becoming an, an actual person, or trying to. And we'll talk about how good Sharon Stone is again later, because now we have Fat Gus asking Michael Douglas, like, how to go with Dr. Beth, and did she have any cookies? Because last time I was there, she had these little cookies that had the icing on top, and it's really good. In this scene, Fat Gus, he's sitting in his his desk and he's drinking a diet pepsi out of a can and you know damn good and well he filled that thing up with hawaiian punch earlier <laughs> in the day it's yeah hawaiian punch spiked with a little pure corn syrup <laughs> just something to get him through the morning <laughs> look at lunch he'll have a slice of pie everything will be fine it's socially acceptable this time of day it's nothing but cafe mochas with extra syrup michael douglas and fat gus enter into this room filled with detectives all discussing the case of Johnny Boz and they say that the ice pick had no prints and it could have been bought at any Kmart and the scarf that he was tied up with was very expensive and there was cocaine found on his lips and his penis so my thought was (laughs) did someone snort cocaine off of his dick or did he try to snort coke off of his own dick how does the biology of that work out i think it's well you know sharon stone does the same move later which is the blowjob to the kiss i just thought he was putting coke on his cock like hey everybody watch this like wow he's flexible or has a giant schlong one (laughs) or the other We also learned that uh, Sharon Stone went to Berkeley and she doubled major in literature and psychology. Who does that? Double major? What? Right. And immediately they're like, well, that means she can get inside your head. That's a big thing in this movie. She'll she'll play games with your head, Nick. You got to be careful, Nick. We learned that Sharon Stone's parents were killed in a boating accident and they left her with a crap ton of money. This was no boating accident. Sorry, I had to get out of my system. <laughs> and she was once engaged to a boxer. And she's a lesbian. And she's a successful writer. This woman has lived 10 lifetimes. And she's barely like 26 years old. I like the fact that she writes under a pseudonym, but puts her picture on the book. <laughs> That's a real th- 3D chess that she's playing there. Well, like it clearly couldn't be Catherine Trammell as Catherine Wolf because her putting her picture speaking of this pen name they're like hey she wrote a book that details a a girlfriend killing her rock star boyfriend and it happened just like it did in the book so it sounds like sharon stone probably fucking did this let's assume that this movie takes place in a world that is halfway close to the reality that we live in are (laughs) we as an audience to believe that this woman is reenacting the events of the book that she wrote because that is just stupid that would be like stephen king trying to get voted prom queen at a high school right or like killing his worst enemy via (laughs) rabid dog (laughs) (laughs) The name of Sharon Stone's murder novel is Love Hurts. Which was the original name of the script, yeah. Well, I'm glad they changed it because it was stupid. They should have changed the name of her novel to Basic Instinct. It's really frustrating that it took to the sequel for someone to use the words Basic Instinct in the movies. I loved it because it's so generic. After this, Michael Douglas calls Fat Gus because he's reading at home. Time to read a good book! And he's reading uh, Love Hurts and he calls up Gus and he's like... 
you'll never guess how she killed him. Coronary heart disease? Because that's what my doctor tells me he's going to take do me in. Type 2 diabetes? Dev, was that on the plate? Speaking of on the plate, I got these cupcakes. There were eight of them for $16. They're that good. I think that a couple fell on the floor because I don't remember <laughs> eating them. I think I got rats. Did you know that pajama pants have pockets in them and they can hold a lot of peanut butter and jelly? The only problem is my thighs get sticky. In case you have a dream about needing to make a sandwich, you got it all covered. One time I had a nightmare that there was no peanut butter. And then I woke up and realized there was. (laughs) Fat Gus, what are we going to do with you? Just love them and that's all you can do. Bury them in a piano box that's what you do with that <laughs> you have to carve out his wall to get him out of there when he does you have to do a gilbert grape on him anyway back at the police station steven tobolowski shows up to add a little spice to this movie we last saw him in season three episode four in memoirs of an invisible man a movie that took place in san francisco i think that this might be the uh, uh stu steven tobolowski universe oh man set in san francisco we have memoirs of an invisible man we have basic instinct he shows up in sneakers which is in san francisco that's right i think we're on to something here am i right or am i right am i right right am i right i'm right i'm right i'm right it makes it a better world (laughs) i swear to god i just i could just i could just watch him talk about nothing all day Uh, and even in this movie when he is laying it on thick Where they're just like, you know, hey, Stephen Tobolowsky, thanks for dropping by. What do you think about this killer? You don't have to name names or nothing. He's just like, this killer is the worst killer that has ever lived. No matter who it is, it could be the writer. It could be somebody pretending to be the writer. Either way, it's a diabolical murderer. And everyone's like, no shit, keep going, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> All right, imagine the worst thing you can in your mind. Like a baby vomiting spiders, and then it gets worse. That's the kind of killer we're dealing with. A baby vomiting spiders kind of killer. He owns this scene. It's the best. He says there, there are two things that are happening here. Number one, Sharon Stone is acting out her book and she is the killer or number two someone read her book and they're acting it out and they're the killer (laughs) yeah it's like thanks for dropping by i mean yes it's her or someone else thanks for narrowing it down (laughs) that's what he says to the world During this scene, Dr. Beth is beside him. Remember, the murderer of the movie, most likely. And she's sitting there giving him the old, like, yeah, what he says. Like, don't let on that you've murdered everybody. (laughs) Right. Don't be that guy, Dr. Beth. That's just like, me. I mean, don't take the credit before the time is is right. During the scene, Fat Gus admits to the broader group of detectives, hey, I can't tell shit from Shinola. I don't even know what the hell you're even talking about. Fat Gus is a detective, and he just admitted in front of his peers, you know, other professional detectives, that he is just a bumbling dumbass who cannot understand basic (laughs) movie science. You know that Dr. Beth has to translate for him because Tobolowski's, you know, book of revelations description (laughs) wasn't sinking in. And so Dr. Beth has to be like, well, now, Fat Gus, you know how donuts are shaped, right? And he's like, well, of course, doctor. Well, they're... they're (laughs) They're either circles or they're sticks or sometimes they're squares or bear claws. 
<laughs> well, just for now, just think of the old-fashioned round donut. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, that's a normal brain. Mm -hmm. Now, you know those misshapen donuts that you bring into the office because they're cheaper? <laughs> the ones I get from the dumpster every night, yes. <laughs> those are misshapen. Oh. That's like the broken brain of a killer. Oh. And they these killers eat those donuts. They could. They could eat those donuts. More importantly, their brains don't work so good, and we need you to find those people. Right. If a detective were to eat a lot of those donuts, would that detective become the killer? If I eat the wrong donut, could I then become a murderer? In this scene, Dr. Beth jumps in and she says, hey, you know, Sharon Stone wrote a book and she might be reenacting the plot from this book. And by doing so, her book would provide her an alibi and therefore she wouldn't be the prime suspect in this murder case. It's a real kind of Victor Victoria moment. And sadly, it just kind of ends there. It's not, I wish the whole movie were just Stephen Tobolowsky telling us how terrible the murderer is going to be, but we've got to leave the room and they're kind of debating whether or not to bring in Sharon Stone. And they're saying, you know, if they do this inappropriately, she could sue them and blah, blah, blah. Michael Douglas is like, she won't do it. She wants to talk. Gus, fat Gus is like, takes one to no one, I guess. In terms of them both being crazy, which is right next door to the I'm rubber, you're glue defense. At the end of the scene when Tobolowski says, you're dealing with someone who is very dangerous. Someone very ill. And it's this real Carcarian Carcarious, a great white <laughs> moment. You don't know the level of sophistication that you're dealing with. And then when you figure out what it is, it's just like, well, this is just a a dumb dumb <laughs> right well like it makes the killer look way smarter when the detectives investigating the killer are this stupid from out of nowhere in the movie wayne knight shows up to lead this team of detectives on this walk and talk tracking shot that wouldn't be seen again for seven years when the west wing debuted on nbc wayne knight as you noted earlier is newman from seinfeld or the fat turncoat from the original jurassic park if you're scoring at home uh, michael douglas says i don't think sharon stone is gonna Hide behind lawyers! I don't think she's gonna hide at all! And then Michael Douglas and Fat Gus decide that they're gonna go back to the beach house and tell Sharon Stone that they want her to come down to police headquarters and answer a few questions. Which they do, but as they're asking her to come downtown, she's like, well, aren't you gonna read me my rights? And Michael Douglas says, well, if that's how you wanna play it, we'll do it any way you want! She's like, all right, fine, fine. Jesus Christ, calm down. Let me go change uh into uh, an outfit worthy of hosting a model event not even being one of the models like you're running the joint well, while they're hanging out at our house michael douglas looks over and he sees a bunch of newspaper clippings that include headlines focused on him and his indiscretions related to being jacked up on cocaine and shooting a couple of innocent tourists. <laughs> yeah, like you do in San Francisco, apparently. And I, oh, also, while he's poking around, uh, he sees that uh, Sharon Stone's getting dressed in the back bedroom and just decides to get himself an eyeful, you know? He sees her ass and he sees her breasts reflected 
in a mirror as she uh-huh. puts on her clothes. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever accidentally seen anybody naked? <laughs> Not anybody I wanted to. <laughs> a friend of my wife went to an open house and the front door was locked. And then she rang the doorbell and she looked inside the house and there was a reflection in a mirror. And she saw a male realtor um, who was showing the house. He was giving a blow job to another guy in the kitchen of the house. But as soon as she rang the doorbell, she was like, oh shit, I can't leave. And as soon as she did this, the realtor and his partner kind of readied themselves and they came to the front door. Whereupon the woman who is the star of my story, I'm telling, she got a tour of the house by the realtor and Everyone that was a party of this tour didn't know that the other person knew what the other person was up to or what they didn't know. Right. It was a glorious story as they told it. Like, really? I love this story. I wish I could have been a part of it. I wish I, well, you know what? I wish I could have been her. I don't know that I would have been the blowjob or the blowjob getting guy because that's probably garners more embarrassment or a sense of self-consciousness. Of be- uh, you know, it, it depends. If I were the guy getting blown, maybe. Just to be like, that's right. I just got a blowjob. I'm thinking if I'm her, I'm like, there's no way I'm ever buying this house. I can't cook in a kitchen where this was the realtor blew a guy. At that point, why even take the tour? Like, you're just wasting everyone's time. Like, I can't make a nice, like, curry chicken without (laughs) thinking of a blowjob. The guy answers the door and it's me. Come on in. I'm like, you know what? I saw you giving that guy a blowjob. I hope you sell the house. And then yeah. you just turn around, you, 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 you 180, pivot on your heel, get in your car, and you head off to... Maybe get a blowjob of your own, you know? There you like, go. Like, maybe it's in the air. <laughs> when, when Sharon Stone is getting dressed... Um, in this famous white dress and she puts her hair up. It should be noted that she is not wearing a bra nor is she wearing underwear when she puts on this very elegant shortcut white I guess a dress. Yeah, v- looking very fashionable. It's, just, it's important later because we're going to see her vagina and you need to know she's not wearing underwear. That's all I'm trying to say here. Right, it's just good filmmaking. You're the, it's basically Chekhov's vagina. And so she she's in the car with uh, Michael Douglas and, and Fat Gus and uh she says, "Hey, can I have a cigarette?" And he's like, "No, I don't smoke." Didn't you see the beginning of the movie? She's like, Jesus, no. Then she starts smoking. He's like, I thought you said you needed a cigarette. And she's like, oh, I found these. He's like, oh, you are really jamming my gears, lady. When he says that he doesn't smoke, she's like, it won't last. And then Gus gets a tour of uh, her brain. It finally learns what suspension of disbelief is, which again, these aren't the best detectives and him being like, go on and tell me how you make stories stories lady and she's like well i just make stuff up and i make it sound believable it's yeah it's suspension of disbelief when gus is like oh i like that suspension of disbelief is fat gus on some rehabilitation program (laughs) where they put mentally slow people in a work shadow program and he's just with a detective to reintroduce him to society right and he doesn't seem to have any real responsibility throughout this film other than making some phone calls later no they let me use the telephone if I promise not to use the bad words. Michael Douglas asked Sharon Stone, he's like, hey, what's your new book about? And she's like, well, it's about a detective who falls for the wrong woman, and then she kills him. And he's like, oh, I don't like the sound of that. That reminds me of something, but I can't put my finger on it. We cut to the interrogation room where Wayne Knight and a whole bunch of other detectives are in there to interview Sharon Stone. And... Sharon Stone doesn't have a lawyer in this particular scene. And she walks over and she takes her place in the interrogation chair. 
And at this point, we pretty much step into the batter's box of this film's most famous scene. I gotta say, I think th- this scene is one of the reasons I like Sharon Stone so much in this movie, because it's her being grilled by these dudes. And I understand that that Paul Verhoeven g- g- rationalized himself to sleep at night by saying, hey, in this scene, I'm presenting this strong, sophisticated woman in the face of these boorish men who are peppering her with questions like the stuff like hey you know did you love johnny boz no i didn't love johnny boz i liked fucking johnny boz (laughs) 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 oh the classics man there it's just this kind of back and forth where the camera's zooming in on people as they lean forward or like very noir kind of uh filmmaking and you know Tell me about cocaine. You know, yes, I liked cocaine. Nick, have you ever fucked on cocaine? That's great. Don't you think? He's like, I don't know. I never fucked on cocaine. Oh, is that right? And it's just this real rapid fire back and forth. And again, Sharon Stone acquits herself really well in the scene. And she comes off being more than the equal of any man in the room. Fat Gus asked Sharon Stone if she's ever used drugs. And she's like, well, yeah, you know, I've used drugs. And Fat Gus is just like, like, oh, I got one in on her. That was a yes. Yeah. (laughs) I like when she says, you know, did you tie Johnny Boz up? And she's like, no, I liked him uh, when he touched me. I like hands and fingers. Just as a concept, I like hands and fingers. You know, you can do it. You can grope and you can grab and you can poke and you can insert and you can stroke and you can fondle. All those things with hands and fingers can be done. I feel like I'm right on the edge of a really filthy Dr. Seuss book. It's at this point in the film that Sharon Stone uncrosses her legs and exposes her vagina in this movie's most memorable scene, as you noted in the introduction. This is a very shocking scene. It was very shocking when it happened. I think even now there is a bit of surprise. And I wanted to ask you, Bo, I've got a list of movies here that have some pretty shocking reveals. And I would like for you to tell me whether or not these scenes were more or less shocking than Sharon Stone revealing her vagina in basic instinct. I was told there would be no math. This is more shocking or less shocking? More shocking or less shocking than Sharon Stone and her vagina. Correct. In, In a little game, I like to call... Is this scene more shocking than seeing Sharon Stone's vagina in Basic Instinct? I didn't understand the premise until the title. Got it. Here we go. In Just One of the Guys, when uh, Joyce Heiser reveals that she is a girl by showing her breast. Uh, Less shocking. The Crying Games big reveal when you see that there's a dick there. Eh, I feel like that was less shocking. How about when Buffalo Bill does his nip tuck and you see him with his mangina in Silence of the Lambs? (laughs) That's, oh, I don't know. Is shocking and disturbing the same thing? Just answer the question. more shocking, more shocking. That was haunting. How about that nude old lady witch ghost in The Shining when you saw her breast? Oh, yeah, that was pretty, eh, that was less shocking. Kathy Bates in About Schmidt. More shocking. Katie Holmes in The Gift. Less shocking. Jamie Lee Curtis in Trading Places. Less shocking. The three-nippled fortune teller in Mallrats. Oh, less shocking. What about after she peeled off and ate one of those nipples. <laughs> well, far less shocking. Jason Siegel's wiener in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> mm, more shocking, maybe. Yeah. Puppet sex in Team America World Police. Definitely more shocking. What about when those naked breasts popped across the screen in Airplane? 
<laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Again, I don't think that was shocking. I think it was hilarious and, and wonderful. Brooke Shields and Pretty Baby. That was more shocking. That was inappropriate. I still, I don't even like that question. Strike that from the record. <laughs> Dr. Manhattan's glowing blue dick and Watchmen. Less shocking. Bart Simpson's penis in the Simpsons movie. Less shocking. Ewan McGregor's penis in Train Spotting. More shocking, maybe. Ewan McGregor's penis in Attack of the Clones. Less shocking. Anytime you ever saw Borat's penis. Less shocking. What about Dirk Diggler's penis in Boogie Nights? Less shocking because it was fake. You win. You got you got seven points. Nice. You needed five for the win. Great. I uh, I like that game. I like in the scene when she shows off her vagina, Wayne Knight is just dripping with flop sweat. It's the best. Like his performance in this, I think, is really good. He like Wayne Knight's one of those utility players that he's so good you don't notice how good he is. You would just notice if he was bad. I think Wayne Knight is consistently just covered in flop sweat. Yes, but that's what kind of makes it wonderful, I think. It's just this you know, this chubby dude being confronted with beautiful vagina and just being again. Michael Douglas calls out Sharon Stone for playing games. And then he brings up the fact, he's like, hey, your boxer husband was dead. Were you fucking Johnny Boz? Was that a goof? And Sharon Stone's like, no, you know, like, hey, Michael Douglas, you know, didn't you ever fuck somebody when you were married? And then you're like, wait, Michael Douglas was married to who? Does he have kids? Does he have a life? I This seems like it should have been important. How is it coming up in the interrogation of a woman who just showed us her vagina? It doesn't matter at all in this movie. Even more importantly, like it, it's brought up maybe one more time in the movie, but does not matter. At this point, Sharon Stone is like, hey, if uh, if you assholes think I'm such a, a murderer, how about I take a lie detector test? And they're like, oh, now we got her. Michael Douglas is like, hey, you can't, this doesn't prove anything because somebody can beat the machine. I know people who have done it. Surprise, surprise. I have a friend asking for a friend. Do you think it would be possible to maybe take a lie detector test and lie about having shot somebody, say? After she passes the lie detector test, she's like, so I need a ride home. Which one of you assholes is going to do it? And they're like, how about you, Michael Douglas? So he's like, like, all right, I'll give her a ride home. Not the kind you're thinking, but maybe that. On the ride home, Sharon Stone asked Michael Douglas if he took a lie detector test after he shot all those people while jacked up on cocaine. And he's like, I passed, didn't I? I didn't cocaine. Quit asking me questions. I'm Michael Douglas, American actor. Back at Sharon Stone's house, Michael Douglas (laughs) says, you sure know a lot about me. Sharon Stone's like, yeah, well, you know that I don't wear underwear, don't you? So... You know, we're even, right? I don't understand any of this. Sharon Stone runs into her house and Michael Douglas proceeds to head off to a bar where he meets up with all of his cop buddies and proceeds to fall off his three-month wagon. <laughs> I, yeah, I like how he gets all defensive about it, too, but they're like, hey, man, it, you know, uh, his, his pal Fat Gus is like, say, wh- what are you doing with all that booze? Why did he fall off the wagon? Because he saw her vagina? Right, he's all hot and bothered. And and Michael Douglas is like, hey, give me a break. It's been three months. And you're like, man, that's not how it works. Like, you just got to stop drinking. You can't just be like, hey, it's been three months, man. I got a backlog. I allowed myself four drinks a week and I haven't had any for 12 
12 weeks, so I'm having all of those tonight. You ever thought about crashing an AA meeting? I would just think there would be some amazing stories that come out of that. Maybe that's just my subconscious telling me that I need help. But you know what? (laughs) I'm just looking for some adventures from alcoholics. Like, what are you guys up to? (laughs) Right, you're writing a book about alcoholics. (laughs) I get it. That would be great. I would love to see you do the cross leg thing at an AA meeting. (laughs) Show a little ball sack. Sir. Hello, boys. You need to leave. Please. It doesn't matter. You were here last week. The wig does not change anything. Nor does the skirt or the dress. (laughs) Michael Douglas starts spouting. I was like, maybe she killed her parents. And she might have killed that boxer she was married to. And then Fat Gus is sitting over there and he's drinking Budweiser and he's washing it down with chicken wings. And Fat <laughs> Gus says, he's like, he's like, hey, he's like, the, the only way that she killed that boxer is she got in the ring with him. And because uh, that's where he died. And then the lieutenant there is like, yeah, maybe she grew an afro, developed a hell of a left hook. And she put shoe polish all over her face. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are we talking about blackface in this movie? <laughs> because it was 1992. Slow your roll. What, yeah. What's going on here? Sadly, we were right around the corner from White Man Can't Jump and everything would be better. Everyone has a good laugh, except for Michael Douglas, who's too busy ordering another double Jack Daniels. Right. He's just like, you know, say bartender, what's taking so fucking long? I haven't had a drink in two and a half minutes. Dr. Beth comes in and she just stands at the bar to look on disapprovingly and then wait for her moment to break up the inevitable fight that's that's bound to happen. So again, let's look at this from the murderer's point of view for a second. Right. She has, the only person she's killed so far is Johnny Boz. Yes. What was her motive for that murder? Is it to set up Sharon Stone? Is that, is, is she the mastermind of that? at least at this point now let me see what my notes look like later on because we're about to introduce a an asshole cop named nielsen and he was sort of on the trail that she might have killed her husband and she was having a lesbian affair all of this is so incredibly convoluted that none of it makes any damn sense at all. right so but yeah nielsen is a guy from internal affairs who had who he, he keeps referring to michael douglas as shooter he's played by a guy named uh, daniel von bargen uh-huh. who i knew as the commandant from the boys' school that the oldest brother on Malcolm in the Middle attended. And he's just kind of initially sort of a dick cop that just keeps saying things like, you know, to Michael Douglas, like he's like, hey, shooter, you back on the blackjack, huh? You want to have another another shot shooter? What do you think, shooter? And his, he's calling him shooter because Michael Douglas shot two innocent tourists while high on cocaine. That is either the worst (laughs) nickname or the greatest nickname I've ever heard in my life. Yes, that did happen. But he was, he was present at the shootings of four people in five years. Yes. So this nickname is not inappropriate. If, uh, if any police officer had shot four people in five years, look, let me explain (laughs) how it works. It's not my fault. It takes at least two people to get shot. The one to do the shooting and the one to get shot. If I pull the trigger and someone decides to get in front of the bullet, it's as much their fault as it is mine. Where's my cocaine? The cocaine actually brings me down. 
shooter uh so right he's just come on shooter come on let's let you need another drink shooter come on shooter uh michael douglas does his one move in the movie which is to stand up suddenly and go oh you make me so mad (laughs) (laughs) and so they're about to go at it and dr beth who has been watching all this from afar busts in and is like hey boys 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 she looks at nielsen she's like and you Fuck off. You're right. Fighting little over little old me. And they're like, no. He just makes me so mad. Come with me, shooter. She gets him out of there and he's all horned up. And he's like, oh, you want to get out of here? And she's like, yeah, I guess. I mean, you haven't shown me any interest at all in days, but why not? I, I like to be jerked around emotionally. They go to Dr. Beth's apartment and it's in this other building, which who knows how far away it is or how far that they walk, but that has not tamp down michael douglas's rage at all once they get inside the apartment there is another building across the way that you can see through these huge windows and in this other building there is a perpetual dance class that is being conducted it is both distracting and mesmerizing at the same time yeah i i still believe it is the verhoven tip of the hat to rear window because he wanted this to be his you know hitchcock film but he can't not make schlock so it became a really schlocky hitchcock film which you know god bless him man you know there's a place for schlock uh and it's called starship troopers once they're in this apartment michael douglas grabs dr beth And they start doing a lot of Hollywood kissing with that sloppy dog tongue mouth thing that people do in movies. And there's a lot of biting of lips. And then Michael Douglas just rips off Dr. Beth's shirt. No, spins her around, tosses her over the back of her chair. When she tries to get up, he pushes her down, then jerks her panties off while she's saying, no, no. And you're like, holy shit, this just got wildly uncomfortable. What you're describing is rape. Uh-huh. That's yes. right. That's what happens in this scene. He rapes her. Up until this point, you're like, oh, this is our damaged hero. This is our flawed protagonist that is going to be the through line of integrity in our film. And no, 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 no. He's basically a rapist who's raping a police psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever she does. And you're just like, well, everyone in this movie, at least for the most part, is a horrible human being. (laughs) Right. Yeah, he is, you know, kind of the worst of them. Yeah. Because of all the rape and the cocaine (laughs) and the murdering of tourists and the alcoholism. Right, but you can almost look past, as weird as it sounds, you can almost look past the, like, I killed killed a kid. Like, I was all high on the cocaine and I shot a child. Well, at least he hasn't raped anybody. Oh. Kind of, right? (laughs) And, And also, you don't see it. It's just this thing in his past that is clearly you know haunting him and and there's something to that right like that's that's a good noir character somebody he drinks a little too much because it hurts a little too much if he don't <laughs> that's that's a noir character that's why they're awesome i think i might be a noir character that's <laughs> well, why i'm so awesome i'm gonna tell everybody that now <laughs> you should just keep the venetian blind slightly open <laughs> is the trick um like yeah and even after they have the rough sex that's putting it mildly man <laughs> right it starts as <laughs> it, it begins as rough sex and then becomes rape is, yes. is my note there and then she reveals that she met sharon stone at berkeley 
she also is like, you've never been like that before, you know, with the rape and all. Uh, she says, you weren't making love to me. And he's like, well, then who was I making love to? She's like, you weren't making love at all. You need to get out of here. Like, you're dangerous. I have realized now. And so she kicks him the fuck out. Then Michael Douglas shows up at the police station the next day smoking. Go off that wagon too. Because fuck it. Then there are a lot of cops in this movie. But I like the black one. Um, because he's the one who's like, hey, there was this murder at Berkeley with uh, an ice pick when Sharon Stone was attending there in like the early 1980s, 1983 is when she graduated. Are we to assume that that murder was never solved? Yeah. That- and that Sharon Stone, while as a student at Berkeley, murdered her professor while in school with an ice pick and then later went on to write a book about someone else murdering a rock star with an ice pick and then she went out of her way to start dating a rock star and then murdered him with an ice pick yes that's what we are led to believe yes why is it an ice pick in this movie why not a knife Eh, it's something different how about like chopsticks uh a little too goofy i think knitting needles that's all right screwdriver you sure corkscrew yeah bowling ball uh definitely a katana sword mm, unwieldy but still effective a writing pen like one of the old style with the points yeah yeah spatula no dildo oh definitely that's a much sexier film <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> oh what is that where's that going oh another one you're ripping me in half all the cops in this movie, they split up to go do some investigating. And then Michael Douglas, he goes to Sharon Stone's house where he sees her get into her black Lotus sports car. And when she gets in, the front license plate frame is from Ron Greenspan, San Francisco, <laughs> which is a Volkswagen and Lotus dealer. And when Basic Instinct was filmed in San Francisco, they wanted to show Sharon Stone in a Lotus and kind of during one of the main sequences. And the only way to do this was to get a car locally. And it was Ron Greenspan who owned a dealership to be able to provide them the car. And he insisted that his license plate frame be clearly highlighted for promotion in the film, which in my opinion I think it should have just started off like, hi, I'm Ron Greenspan of Greenspan Volkswagen and Lotus in San Francisco. Maybe you remember me for my name on the license plate in the car in the Sharon Stone movie, Basic Instinct, where she showed her vagina. Are you in the market for a new Volkswagen or Lotus and live in the greater San Francisco area? Then come on down to Greenspan Volkswagen and Lotus, where we won't double cross you or ice pick your pocket to make a great deal. Got a used car to trade? Then bring it on down. You show us yours, and we'll show you ours. Selection, that is, of low-mileage, high-quality automobiles. Come down to Ron Greenspan, Volkswagen, and Lotus, where your basic instinct will get you a great deal. (laughs) You are so much better at this show than I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the same voice. Um, Michael Douglas follows Sharon Stone on this winding road up this California highway that has clear double lines. If ever a road needed triple lines to say do not pass, this is the road. And Michael Douglas is doing the worst job of tailing someone in the history of ever. 
I argue he is doing the most Michael Douglas job of tailing someone just like, oh, as close as I can get. Drivers in a demolition derby (laughs) are less conspicuous in their attempts to remain anonymous during battle. If I get close enough, I'll just jump on her hood. It'll save gas. Michael Douglas is swerving in and out of traffic until like a Greyhound bus, rightfully so, almost pushes him off the side of this mountain like horns blaring. And then Michael Douglas is just screaming at like, God damn it! How am I supposed to say zero car links between her and all of the people obeying the basic rules of the road? He's so furious about people driving safely along this twisty mountain highway. (laughs) He he then makes it to the next town and he's just, he's just filled with rage. I'm just like, (laughs) fuck, how am I ever going to find Sharon Stone's car? Oh wait, there it is. (laughs) Yeah. It's just the first place he looks. (laughs) It's the best. Like, after all this, God, how will I ever find her again? Yeah, it, it's the best. He parks his car right across the street from the house where her car is parked. He he parks in a place where you would park if you were going to an adult birthday party. It's, it's not right in front of the house. It's like two or three car lengths away <laughs> so that either one, you won't be an asshole as parking that close or two, more pragmatically, you're not going to be blocked in by other cars that may show up. Right, like you're not going to be there all the goddamn day. (laughs) And at a certain point, you don't want to be the asshole that's like, hey, Jerry, I need you to move. And I know that Mike's behind you. And I think Shelly is beside you. So can all of you back up 30 feet so I can leave? You're leaving already? Just just shut the fuck up and get get in your cars. Dance Dance Revolution. We just got it out. You get in those cars right now or I drive through them. (laughs) Michael Douglas, he gets out of his car after he parks and he's like, well, it's time for some good old fashioned American detective work. Let's walk up to this house and open up the mailbox and take out the mail. It's not a crime. If the homeowner is a communist, which clearly this person is. Let's see what's going on in the mailbox. (laughs) And he opens up this mailbox and inside there's mail from a woman named Hazel Dobkins, which if if ever a Harry Potter name there was, it's Hazel Dobkins. (laughs) Right. I think she teaches the fungus class. Oh, Hazel Dobkins, come right in. I'll show you the wonders of mushrooms. He goes back to his car and he just gets in the car and he just waits. And then day turns to night. And then eventually Sharon Stone comes out of the house and we see her get a goodnight kiss from someone who we assume is Hazel. She looks like she could be her mom, but Sharon Stone's mom's dead in this movie. So maybe she has an older lesbian lover. And later that still may be the case. I don't know. Or just a mother figure. That's kind of what I assumed. Also worth noting that uh, Hazel Dobkins is played by Dorothy Malone, who was in a bunch of noir films. Uh, like she was in uh, The Big Sleep and a movie called The Fast and the Furious Ooh. back before it was a Vin Diesel thing. Oh. Yeah, not the same thing. But yeah, it was kind of <laughs> known to be a femme fatale. It was kind of a nice, you know, tip of the hat of like, hey, this was her last movie and let's have her show up and be in one more noir film. I mean, it, it sucks that it was Basic Instinct, but, you know, kind of a Stone. nice moment. Sharon Stone drives off and Michael Douglas immediately gets right behind her. 
Uh, and he's on the road. And then Sharon Stone sees him behind her and she speeds off and leaves Michael Douglas to sit angrily at a red light in traffic. And he's just like, God damn it. Lost her again. Michael Douglas, all American actor and world's greatest detective has no luck when it comes to traffic. Oh, and I know these streets of San Francisco so well. We then cut to Michael Douglas showing up at Sharon Stone's house later that evening. And he just goes to the back of her home because he has no sense of boundaries or respect for other people's privacy right it's just i want to see her naked so i will it's illegal even for a rogue police officer this is trespassing at best it becomes invasion of privacy as michael douglas sees sharon stone standing in front of it's like this never-ending wall of windows and sharon stone just slowly disrobes for everyone who is lurking in the bushes of her house can see and you see her breast you see her ass you see her vagina again and then she just turns off the lights and i guess just retires for the evening Uh, again it's one of those scenes that's like hey this is kind of showing off like hey sharon stone's a beautiful woman also michael douglas is a world-class creep in this movie oh he's completely like oh yeah this is great i get to see this woman naked for the third time in as many days Great day for Michael Douglas, all-American actor and world's greatest detective. If it weren't for these calluses, I'd crank one out right now. Dr. Beth, you'll be the bane of my existence. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes to the office late because he he wants to do some detecting, Mm -hmm. which just involves Wikipedia and shit. Like, we are essentially detectives. They go in, it's like, I found a name, Hazel Dobkins. Who is that? He types it in, and it's a real H-A-Z-E-L Dobkins. Where's the Dob key? And this computer spits back clues like he is playing Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? It's great, man. It's like uh, Tom Skerritt talking to Mother in Alien. Mother, turn turn off the alarms. I'm sorry, I can't do that. You know, it, it's like... <laughs> It is a total AI of just, here's a general name. It's just like, well, here are the relevant things that you probably want to know about that. <laughs> it's, it's real Hollywood bullshit. Like after he types it in, like the first response is nothing current. And then you see the, the, the present year and then it starts rolling backward until we hit the year 1965. And it's like, ah, information. Released San Quentin, July 7th, 1965. And then there's a pause for you to digest that. And then it's like prior arrest record, pause, homicide, pause, January 10th, 1956, pause, San Francisco. And then Fat Gus rolls in and he calls out Michael Douglas for working on this case at night. And he's like, ain't you got nothing better to do than to come in here and jack off the damn machine what what is he talking about he he just heard michael douglas say it he's just trying to impress him you know when you said jerk off this is uh, you jerk off the computer i'm gonna jerk off the computer you and me michael douglas maybe the internet was just really starting to get a little traction he heard there was porno on it (laughs) you can jerk off the computer no you jerk off with the computer what how do i download my winky (laughs) Fat Gus says that there was 
a professor at Berkeley who got murdered. Right. <laughs> but it turns out that Sharon Stone wasn't a suspect. And then Fat Gus looks over and he sees the name Hazel Dobkins has been, you know, pecked out on the computer. He's like, oh, that's crazy. I remember Hazel Dobkins. She's the one what one day woke up and decided to kill her husband and all her kids for no reason at all. That was crazy. Yeah. Why didn't you ever tell me? <laughs> GMD, you never mentioned it to me before. <laughs> Come to think of it, you never spoke to me before. Now look me in the eyes at the same time. <laughs> Michael Douglas goes back to uh, Sharon Stone's house because he's a creep. She just lets him in and she has this crazy stash of newspaper articles all about Michael Douglas. And Sharon Stone says, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm using you as the inspiration for the detective in my, no my new book. You don't mind, do you? And then Michael Douglas was like, I don't mind. I'm Michael Douglas. Inspiration's what I do. I'll be immortalized in literature. It feels great. Michael Douglas says, I got some questions for you, Sharon Stone. She's like, well, I have some questions for you. And then Sharon Stone pulls out this just brick of ice and she smashes it on the counter with her hands and a bunch of it crumbles to the floor, which if that ice melts, that is a slipping hazard. Mm-hmm. Not to mention water stains. Sharon Stone starts stabbing the brick of ice with an ice pick on the countertop. And it's not even in a sink. This is just impractical behavior. This isn't like the year 1894 and a train pulled up and gave you a block of ice. None of this makes any damn sense at all that someone would be doing this. It's incredibly inefficient. And in fact, when he's like, why do you keep using an ice pick? And uh, she's like, I like rough edges. You like rough edges? explain yourself ice cubes don't have rough edges they have jagged edges but it's still smooth it's ice you don't make any sense don't you have a thesaurus i thought you were a writer paint on the canvas of the blank page with your words i'm michael douglas and she's just like yeah well if you know so damn much how about shooting on those four people in five years and hey how much cocaine were you doing on the day of the shooting and he's like i don't know what you're talking about why do you have some cocaine and then she she says i think you liked it shooter and that's maybe why your wife killed herself maybe and you're like the fuck not only did he have a wife she's dead and killed herself <laughs> right and then and while he's like how did you know that roxy shows up uh-huh she and sharon stone kiss and while like it's just a gratuitous grab of her tit by sharon stone which i kind of like where she's just like <laughs> mm -hmm. look at this hand right there michael douglas is like wait what did it just happen here and then he stalks out and uh sharon stone yeah. laughing calls after him you're gonna make a terrific character nick ah, michael douglas all-american actor knows when he's not wanted <laughs> Knows when he's a third wheel. Exit stage left. Looks like it's just you and me, old pal. I mean my calloused hand. I like to call her Rosie Palm and our five friends. <laughs> Are you a big fan of... Shit, who was it? Jackson Brown, that's who sang it. Remember, you know the song? Rosie, you're all right. You wear my ring when you hold me tight. The whole thing's about jerking off. I, when I think of jerking off songs, I think of uh, My Best Friend by the, the band Jellyfish. Different thing. When I think about songs that are about jerking off, I think about My Ding-A-Ling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe the, the song by Blind Melon Chitlin. <laughs> 
and stroke it. You can't uh-huh. forget stroke it. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I feel like Queen probably did a song about jerking off. I think every song that Queen did that has masturbation in it somewhere. I mean, certainly everything on Night at the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, uh, after my, Michael Douglas storms uh, out of Sharon Stone's joint because Roxy showed up, he goes right into Beth's office and she's like, the fuck? And... <laughs> Yeah, she's on the phone, and she immediately has to excuse herself from the call because right. she's like, "Hey, look, sexual assault is about to occur in my office. <laughs> Dial nine one one. Isn't that you? Aren't you the police? It's the other one. The ones who'll pay attention when a woman yells rape. Oh, those haven't been invented yet. Okay. Wait, nine nine one one. Wait, do I have to dial nine to get out? Is it nine? Then another nine, then nine one one. It's it's too late. He's here. Get a load of this one, Jimmy. Must be her time of the month. She says that someone's come into her office and is trying to rape her. I mean, can you believe it? Which he does. He just comes in and she's like, hey, who had access to my file? He's like, they know about me and my cocaine and my dead wife. Which I wanted to ask you, how do you think his wife killed herself when you heard that she had committed suicide? Autoerotic asphyxiation. (laughs) That's normally my go-to, but I sort of crafted this whole backstory that ended with the rising of the sun and a magnifying glass and a homemade uh, guillotine (laughs) ending in self-decapitation. Wow. Uh. It was like, it's like if Rube Goldberg committed suicide you know but there's something to be said for that like if you fell asleep in the pillory and we're like hey there's no way i'm gonna wake up before dawn so i just go to bed tonight and then the guillotine takes care of the rest can you imagine you're sitting in a bar you're having a drink with rube goldberg and you ask the question like you ever thought about killing yourself and just what happened in his head at that moment of like have i Right. Bum, 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 a boot bum, kicks a marble that tumbles onto a beam that tilts as the marble rolls. Kicks a pail up. The pail has some men in it that drops on a, another bucket that pulls a string that sets it a balloon off. And then a pin pops that, which scares a rabbit, which runs down a track. And it hits this trigger that fires a shotgun right at your fucking face. I was thinking it just, it exposes you a ridiculous amount of iodine that gives you cancer. (laughs) Right. Like Rube Goldberg would take the long way home. Yeah, sure. It's like, here's lead poisoning. (laughs) Oh, shit. His version of the mic drop. And you're just like, Rube Goldberg, you are a master. You know what? I'm I'm real upset about the next seven years of my life being continually painful until I die. But well played, sir. You didn't expect to talk about Rube Goldberg committing suicide when this conversation started. I hoped. So anyway, uh, he after the file, uh, he demands to know who has access to the file, and he's like Nielsen, and then. Runs out of that office into another office just to cause some shit in there where he grabs Nielsen by the lapel and he's just like, hey, how much did she pay you for the file? She knows so much about me. And Nielsen's like, what the fuck, man? Get your hands off me. You know, his cronies, he's got like, you know, his posse that he rolls with that one of whom is Special Agent Skinner from the X-Files. In this scene, push comes to shove and then that the guy you're talking about pulls out a gun and puts it to 
Michael Douglas's head <laughs> sure. to calm him down, which I got to tell you, I find that brandishing a firearm <laughs> always is the best approach to de-escalating a tense situation. Sure, yeah. I you know, you as someone <laughs> as someone who has been at the business end of a gun, it does bring things into focus. <laughs> shit gets out of control that's when you just pull out <laughs> pull out your gun and everybody's like you know what everybody just calm down i've got my gun <laughs> you do what the beastie boys recommended pull out your jimmy and let two fly tranquilo everybody in through the nose out through the mouth in through the nose out through the mouth i'll tell you what there are a couple people in the back there still chatting i'm gonna fire this just one more time <laughs> bang all right i think that got everyone's attention Fuck. now let's just say <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Fire, fire a gun in the middle of a mall. See how how de-escalated that situation gets. You get de-escalated out of there on a stretcher. Everybody in police headquarters, they're all on Team Nielsen, and they're just screaming out like, "You're finished, Michael Douglas. You're you're headed straight to Throughsville. You're out of here." And then Michael Douglas makes his way out into the parking lot, where Detective Fat Gus comes waddling out and he's got like a rack of ribs under one arm and a bottle of ranch dressing in the other hand i i saw there was still half a half a box of donuts on your desk <laughs> it's okay if i take those i mean you're not coming back right because i already did i just i want to make sure it was okay they fell in my mouth and i ate them <laughs> This is the point where Fat Gus starts his downward spiral into becoming a redneck. And he refers to Michael Douglas in this scene as Hoss. Which you're just like, why did you call him Hoss? Because once he does it, he just keeps doing it. Like once, it's like uh, breaking the seal uh, when, you, when you're drinking, you know? And it's like, oh, if, as soon as I start peeing, that's it. I'm just going to pee every 15 minutes the rest of the night. And as soon as you break the seal on Hoss in this movie, every 35 seconds it george zunza is like i don't know hoss uh you know between you and me hoss i'm not sure this is right you understand what i'm saying hoss it, like what when he shows up in a cowboy hat i was like what the fuck is happening in this movie <laughs> anyway we'll we'll get there but so michael douglas is at home now watching the jeffersons and drinking real hard which it sound it, this whole scene i'm just like this is amazing <laughs> a bottle of jack daniels and Jefferson's reruns? <laughs> that he is barely paying attention to, mostly <laughs> concentrated on the drinking and grumbling to himself. <laughs> fire me, I'll fire you. And Beth shows up and lets herself in, which is a big mistake. Because he's immediately like, what are you doing in here? She's like, hey, I've, I've still got a key. You're drunk. What is going on? The key that she has to his apartment is attached to a keychain that has an oversized Bart Simpson on it. Right. And I got to call shenanigans on this because the Bart Simpson that they show is wearing a blue shirt, blue pants, and blue shoes. And Bart Simpson wears a red shirt. So pay attention to the details. They matter. Basic instinct. If you think that's not a knockoff keychain that the production department got on the streets of San Francisco for, say, two American dollars. I'm thinking that Michael Douglas's character is like, Hey, I won this for you from the claw machine game over there. I'm going to put my house key on it. You can come over and fuck me whenever you want. Unless I don't want to. Then I'll kick you out. Unless you have cocaine and then I will. Stay out of the line of fire of my bullets. 
I've killed four people in five years! That's only because I'm a bad shot! And a terrible police officer! And I rape people! And my wife committed suicide! I'm what they call a mess! And he tells her in this scene, Maybe you should get a therapist. Maybe then you could come. And she's like, Whoa! Hey, man. What bee got in your bonnet? But she starts smacking him around a little bit. You know, like the hunted has become the hunter. Right. She's like, you know what? I did give that file to uh, Internal Affairs. And you know why? It was to keep your dumbass from getting fired. And, you know, explains like like I had to open up about what our discussions were. Because if I didn't, they were going to fire you. And she's like, by the way, how about you go fuck yourself? And then she takes off. Let's pause for a second. So Dr. Beth, she murdered Johnny Boz and she's in love with Michael Douglas and she's trying to send Sharon Stone to jail. So she gave Michael Douglas's file to Nielsen so that he would give it to Sharon Stone so that she would write a book about Michael Douglas, like immortalizing him as a raping super detective that nobody knows about. Like, I don't understand how all of this plays together. I think that's the best explanation I've heard so far. And it was terrible. Let's get to Michael Douglas waking up to a phone call in the middle of the night while on TV, the Jeffersons have ended. And now he's watching Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. (laughs) He sure as hell is. That reminded me how good that movie is. At this point, I thought, you know what? Bo and I might actually get along with Michael Douglas's character in this movie if you remove all of the raping and the physical assault and the history of questionable homicide. Other than that, we might be friends. But then Michael Douglas, when he picks up the phone, he answers with the one word phrase, yo. And I was immediately (laughs) like, you know what? You're dead to me. Yeah. I don't care what you're watching on TV. No one who answers the phone, yo, gets a pass. That just means from for here till the day we die, if your name comes up on my phone, that's how I answer it. With me? Mm Mm-hmm. My favorite phone call I ever had with you was well over 20 years ago. You called me one time and answered the phone and I said, hello. And you were in the middle of a conversation with me that I wasn't part of. And you said, it's not the fact that Ernie and Bert were gay, but who do you think was giving it to who? And I told you that I thought Ernie was giving it to Bert. And you were like, yeah, exactly. Right. And then you went on to pontificate about this, about how you thought Ernie was a top and Bert was a bottom. I think you were high, with hindsight. That's hard to believe. Um, wait, no, that's real easy to believe. <laughs> Which just goes to show that I, I, you know, I speak the truth in any circumstance. Um, Even when no one else is around to corroborate or, or refute you. I've got a lot of blogs that no one reads, Chad. A lot of, a lot of different uh, outlets. <laughs> The list of enemies is strictly on Reddit. Uh, so th- he get he gets called uh, and and does the yo, and then immediately is like, "I'm on my way." He arrives at a crime scene where it turns out that uh, Nielsen, the internal affairs detective that was in a shoving match with him at the bar, he was also the commandant from Malcolm in the Middle. He was also uh, the villain in Lord of Illusions. I don't know what those words mean, but I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's best you know. Uh, Sam from Quantum Leap was a detective uh, investigating the apocalypse. Oh, now it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's, well, more, maybe. Um, So he's found uh, shot in the head in his car. Yeah, Michael Douglas is immediately 
Like, it wasn't me! I didn't shoot my gun in this direction tonight. At least I don't think I did. The last thing I remember was me and John Daniels settling in to watch a little Hellraiser 2. I can't say for certain, but even if I did kill Nielsen, it's most likely his fault for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And by the wrong place, I mean the end of my gun. And by the wrong time, I mean when I pulled the trigger with the hot rage of a thousand suns. Besides, I was probably drunk. Scratch probably. (laughs) Immediately, the lieutenant is like, I'm going to need your gun. And then he just gives it a like a double. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's the good stuff. Like straight from the barrel. Like what kind of a pervert are you? I like the sniff. It reminds me of uh, Jeff Bridges and the contender when he sniffs his shoe. (laughs) Reminds me of Deadpool sniffing his gun. In oh, that yeah. case, it was kind of fun. It was that case. It was kind of funny and weird. In this case, it was just weird and weird. <laughs> so we get a parallel scene now where Michael Douglas is in the interrogation room, which was designed by Werner Herzog. It looks like a room that's built for someone to practice their drumming. Every it, 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 the whole all of the the walls are covered with like this spongy sound absorbing material. Like if if you were beating a, a a subject, nobody could hear it. Maybe that's why it's the interrogation room. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. And, and so, Beth, uh, Doctor Beth, enters fashionably late, uh, where they're like, eh, "We've already been talking to him," and uh, they're like, "Hey, where were you when the lieutenant uh, got killed?" And and I was at home getting drunk, watching the Jeffersons and Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Yeah, and Dr. Beth is like, that's right, I stopped by and he was drunk as shit watching the Jeffersons. It was the saddest thing you ever saw. It was the one where the maid went on strike. It was hilarious. The show was great. He was very sad. So I got out of there. I was only there for about 15 minutes because, you know... How much of that can you take? They're like, well, that does sound like Michael Douglas. So uh, Michael Douglas, by the way, decides he's going to light a cigarette. And they're like, (laughs) hey, man, you don't have a vagina to show us. You can't get away with this shit. What are you going to do? Charge me with smoking? Call back to when the vagina lady said it earlier. Yeah, and they're like, you know what? No, what we are going to do though is we're going to we're going to put you on leave because you're a crazy person, and pending a psych evaluation, we'll decide if you you should be part of the police force or not. Because look, we don't even strive for basic competency on this force. All we we ask for is sanity, and you are failing (laughs) to meet that low standard. At the end of this, Michael Douglas runs after Dr. Beth, and he's like, thank you for providing me an alibi. And then she says, well, it's the least that I could do, uh, you know, because I kind of got you into this mess by giving away your personal file. And well, you know, there was that whole thing about you raping me earlier, but <laughs> yeah, whatever, water under the bridge, water under the bridge. We're, we're, you know, let's just call it even. You raped me. I helped you out. <laughs> Right. This seems like a real imbalanced <laughs> equation. And then she lets it drop. She's like, oh, I hardly knew Sharon Stone. Like, we went to Berkeley at the same time, but I hardly knew her. Don't worry about it. It doesn't, man, it doesn't matter. And... When- 
But when they walk, but they walk outside, and once they're out there, she kind of leans in and gives him a kiss on the mouth. And if you are a police psychologist or whatever her job is, and then the suspected cop killer that you're representing is there with you, and you're kissing them on the mouth, it just feels like, hey, everybody, nothing to see here, nothing's going on. We're just kissing and just being, we just friendly, we just love each other, we have sex, whatever. Just not only are they having this grotesque public display of affection that is incredibly inappropriate for two professionals there's a point where like michael douglas is apologizing where he's like look what i said last night i didn't mean it and she's like yes you did just like you meant that rape you don't have to apologize and she's like i'm a big girl i can take it and he's like good for you i'll be around later or not that's how our relationship works. She gets in her car, and as he goes back inside, man, her expression goes from, like, a smile to the cold-blooded stare of a killer. It is wonderful. But in this movie, once you see that smile snap off her face, and you can see, like, oh, there's something else going on here. First off, anyone who watches this movie and doesn't realize that Dr. Beth is the killer, shame on you. You've never watched an episode of... <laughs> murder she wrote or she's the sheriff or you know love boat or fantasy island or the incredible hulk or the dukes of hazard or dallas or falcon crest what's happening now um an episode of the price is right um <laughs> 60 minutes like like that's incredible uh, I mean, the, the, all of these shows have clearly telegraphed in how this movie is going to end. But when, once you see her face go from like, tee hee hee to I'm going to kill you, you, there's no doubt as to her nefarious behavior and sort of how this movie is going to end. Right. Regardless of the final shot of the, the whole film. Right, which we are going to largely ignore. Because it's bullshit. Yes. Michael Douglas goes back to uh, my favorite uh, cop at the station, and he's like, hey, do you, have you? I know that I'm kicked off the force and whatnot for now, but do you mind just telling me details of the investigation anyway? And he's like, yeah, uh, I guess so. So, you know that boat that blew up that had Sharon Stone's parents on it? Well, it turns out there was a leak in the fuel line. That's why it exploded, so it could have been foul play. The lieutenant gets wind of Michael Douglas sniffing around this case and is like, hey, listen, man. You are kind of, for all intents and purposes, semi-fired. You need to get out of here. And the way he puts it is like, go sit in the sun and get this crazy Sharon Stone out of your system. But when you talk about Sharon Stone's character in this film, she has lived a life that is head and shoulders above any other character that you can imagine in this particular movie. Her parents were blown up on a boat. She has a double major from Burke. She dated a boxer who was killed fighting while in the ring. She's insanely rich. She dated a fading rock and roll star who was murdered with an ice pick. She has had numerous lesbian affairs. She has befriended a woman who has committed multiple murders. She is a published author, not once, but twice. She prefers to dress without wearing underwear. She lives in an Oceanside mansion. Her life is as if you took Lisa Marie Presley and mashed it up with Hugh Hefner. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, she's she's living every second. Right, and she's like 27 years old, 28 maybe. Mm-hmm. I, and part of me feels like, well, it's only it's 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 downhill from here. But then I'm like, you know what? Shit, maybe it's uphill. You've seen part two. I don't know where this story goes. <laughs> Nowhere good. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so Michael Douglas just goes back home where Sharon Stone is waiting for him. He's like, hey, you want to come up and get drunk? I mean, have a drink? She's like, oh, I, I thought you'd never ask. And I'm starting to question why I want to go. She she says, you know, eventually I'm going to know you better than you know uh, yourself. And he's like, I don't understand any of that. Look at this. I've got an ice chunk the size of a bowling ball and an ice pick. I know the way you like it, sweetheart. Stab, stab. And immediately she's like, give me that. You're doing this like a maniac. Like you do everything. Uh, she starts flirting with him about like, hey, what if I call you Nikki? I like Nikki. What about Shooter? You don't like Shooter? Finally, he's just like, what do you want from me? She's like, hey, do you have any Coke? I like Coke with my Jack Daniels. And then Michael Douglas says, there's some in the fridge. And when I watched this movie, I was like, he keeps his cocaine in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I keep mine in the wall safe. Along with the loaded gun and the antidote, but I, I maybe he just does things differently. <laughs> I keep mine in a baggie in the kitty litter. Stuff it up my asshole. <laughs> oh, I mean, if I want a good day at work, sure I do. <laughs> These two start having sexy talk, and they stand way too close to each other when they speak. And then Sharon Stone gives Michael Douglas, she's like, hey, here's a copy of my first book. It's called The First Time. And it's a novel that I wrote about a boy who killed his parents on their private boat, uh, I mean plane, to make it look like an accident. And look, man, not since OJ's If I Did It has there been the title of a book that is more in support of a person's potential motive of committing a crime. Well, and then she says, don't worry, I wrote it after it happened. Like, that makes it okay. (laughs) No matter when you wrote it, your confession book, you still wrote a confession book. I got a book I'm working on. It's called How to Rape Your Therapist. I can't remember when I wrote it. Maybe she just thought, like, I'll just tell him this. (laughs) And because I sound convinced, he will assume that it's true. Don't worry. (laughs) I wrote it after. Right. You couldn't have done it. Hence OJ's if I did it. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. So my question to you was that. So Sharon Stone went to Michael Douglas's house to just give him a copy of the book that she wrote years ago about a kid who killed his parents. Why would she do this? This isn't the behavior of somebody that has committed a crime. This is the behavior of someone who is 100 percent innocent of any crime. You would not do this. Oh, I totally agree. I, you know, the argument you could make on the other side of this is well that's the game that she likes to play she wants to dance close to the fire (sighs) but i like the world where she is just kind of into this guy she is basing a character on him and she's just kind of interested in flirting with him and and yeah she's a little combative and a little aggressive but that's just kind of who she is detective fat gus shows up and he's got a large pizza hut pizza in hand or as he calls it just a road pizza 
You know, like when he leaves the house, he just picks one up. You know that there were like, when he hit the stairs, there were three slices missing. And I'll tell you, I really like the high Gus that Sharon Stone gives him as she passes him on the stairs. Hey Gus, I have this real casual kind of hello. And he's just like, oh, she's a pretty lady. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. When Gus gets up to Michael Douglas's apartment, he's like, Hoss! Here on the Ponderosa, you got your head up your ass. I half this pizza's gone. And then in that scene. And that's it. Yeah, it's just Gus being like, boy, she's really got in your head, pal. Yeah, you you really should think about this. We should order some pizza. <laughs> Eating all this pizza reminds me I could use some pizza. So, but Michael Douglas goes to this club where Sharon Stone was like, hey, if you come by later, I'll be at this club. It's Johnny Boz's nightclub. Right, his nightclub. He sees Roxy dancing and he's like, I've seen her before. And and he follows her into the men's room where there is a separate party happening in a men's room unlike any I have ever seen or imagined, quite frankly. It's not even like a bathroom. It's just another part of the club where there happens to be toilets against the wall. <laughs> there are people doing all manner of drugs and cocaine and who knows what. And then Michael Douglas, he finds Sharon Stone sitting on the toilet sexy and she's making out with roxy (laughs) and then there's this like skinny looking guy who looks like a emaciated neil degrasse tyson and he's just handing out drugs to the two of them in this bathroom stall and then sharon stone shuts the stall door with her foot when she sees michael douglas show up which it's a nice privacy move and i like that she uses her foot but It also reflects a lack of sanitation in this place. When you go into certain bathrooms and you're just like, you know what, dude, I am not touching anything with my hands in here from the door to the toilet flush to the exit. You're you're really in a class that is in the bottom 25 percentile. The thought of making out in a toilet stall is just one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in a film. So Sharon Stone shuts the the disgusting bathroom door on him and Michael Douglas is just like, great, I'll go drink! And it's straight for the bar where he just knocks back a couple of, you know, blackjacks as he calls them, which is terrible. Um, So stupid. While the three bathroom buddies are dancing and like Roxy and Sharon Stone are kissing and Michael Douglas is just staring at him like a creep. Like he does everything in this movie. He is 25 years older than everyone else in this club. He looks like a dude who's there to take his daughter home. (laughs) Yeah. Or he's the bouncer's uncle (laughs) that just breezed into town. (laughs) Hey, what do you do? I'm bouncer at this club. Oh, come by. Please don't. (laughs) No problem. It's not what I meant. Michael Douglas uses his manly, seductive nature. And then he pulls Sharon Stone over. And then through his tight Wrangler jeans, he like thrust his dick up against her back. And then these two just start kissing. And then off to the side, Roxy, the lesbian, she is not pleased with what's going on here. 
No, she dances very aggressively at him. Yeah, she, and she's dancing with that skinny Neil deGrasse Tyson. I thought of him as Garrett Morris when he dressed up like a leprechaun. <laughs> I could see that as well. So then we cut to a hotel room, I think, and Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone are now having sex. And he's kissing her on her nipples. And all the windows in this hotel room are open and the wind is blowing and the drapes are, are, are waving in the breeze. And he then puts his mouth mouth on her vagina and michael douglas's character looks up and says you know i got throat cancer from eating some bad cooch in real life i can't say that it was czt who gave me the throat cancer but i've got my suspicions that was maybe my first hint that that michael douglas was a world-class creep when, when he said that i besmirched the good name of Catherine zeta jones's vagina i was like you're an idiot man that is uh, that that sounds like some alex jones bullshit i didn't have throat cancer before i married her and now i do you do the math you know her people they poison you with their vagina juice what what how on earth there is no science to back any of this up i feel it in my bones especially my throat bones that have cancer (laughs) fuck you anyway so a couple of questions about this sex scene if i if i may please i'll answer them if i can so i referred to this a little bit earlier there's the blow job like he goes down on her and she's like hey i you know <laughs> the two great tastes that taste great together i'll i'll blow you because you were eating me and then she immediately goes from the blow job to kissing him and is it impolite to refuse such a kiss if you're just like oh you were just i i think it de- it depends on how far things went and your level of comfort i mean some people like the taste of their own blood some people eat their own boogers like i don't oh, know I see what you're saying okay i was like i don't think blood is what comes out of the penis chat and if so you really need to talk to someone excuse me doctor should i have more blood in my semen or my feces <laughs> right now it's a real toss-up but there's a lot in both i just want someone to look at it and see if they think that something might be wrong Are these a lot of calluses on my hands? (laughs) Have I shown you my penis? It looks like three pieces of bacon. (laughs) 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 So while these two were fucking, I just kept thinking, what did the crew of this film feel as all of this was happening in front of the camera? It could not have been comfortable. No, and that's the thing. I I don't think that anybody in these scenes, except maybe Michael Douglas, is having a good time. Because <laughs> he seems like the kind of creep that's like, oh, she's so young. Oh, I'm going to lick her nipple. Like, he comes from a line of this. I don't know if you remember a movie called Saturn 3. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? Yes. It's Kirk Douglas. <laughs> Old man Kirk Douglas, who at the time of, of the filming of that was in his 60s. <laughs> and insisted on Farrah Fawcett being cast as the his, like the woman that was the co-lead, the woman that he lived in this space station with. The stories about that set of him walking around and just being like, whoopsie daisy, there's my penis. Like, 
this is Spartacus going around showing his junk to Farrah Fawcett, who was like 19 years old or some shit at the time. It's horrifying. Who did he think he was? John Derrick? <laughs> <laughs> right but that's the thing like that seems to be the rule not the exception you know of just gross dudes being like how old is she 19 seems a little old and so michael douglas uh in this scene like i pointed out in the intro that ann archer was up for the dr beth role and you know it was just like i don't know she's a little old everyone in this movie except for sharon stone i think is kind of gross and stephen tobolowski who is also wonderful i'm glad that present day hollywood is nothing like this <laughs> right <laughs> michael douglas even at the at the point in this scene where he comes it's all angry it's just like Arr! she reaches down and she pulls out this white silk scarf which is like what we saw at the beginning of the movie and everyone watching this film is 100 sure that she is not gonna kill him right which she does not do she's just fucking him and then she kind of reaches her hand back like she's gonna maybe you know grab an ice pick like dr beth did earlier but she doesn't she just fucks him and then they have orgasm and then the the scene kind of ends which i just want to say speaking of dr beth when this movie starts dr beth has somehow made her way into the world of the san francisco nightclub scene she has sought out uh the boyfriend of her college lesbian lover seduced him she is now wearing a blonde wig and having sex with this former rock and roll star and she tied him up and then she proceeds to murder him in a fashion that was reflective of sharon stone's novel in hopes that sharon stone would be convicted of this murder is that what was going on Mm, yes i don't know it's just eh, it don't matter i know it's just just when you go back and reverse engineer it it doesn't make any sense right but the the alternative is that sharon stone is just making it look like that's what's happening but that's impossible <laughs> right which is even crazier that's like saying that roy scheider was really the one that killed all those people in jaws baited like at night he was going out on the boat it like all, the ruse was that he uh was not afraid of the water at all right and right. at night was going out yep. chumming the water they, yeah listen up here all right you know welcome info wars that's what's going on roy scheider is really the shark all right <laughs> right he was somehow like his brother married a shark it's just so stupid yeah it it, it don't matter and so Later on, uh, after all the fucking is done, Michael Douglas is strolling to their swanky bathroom for a little freshening up, you know, a little horse bath. <laughs> you get to see his ass and you get to see his balls uh-huh. a little bit. Yeah, it's nice. The, and it turns out Roxy is just hanging out in there. Uh, he's like, whoa, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, uh, Catherine likes it when I watch. And he's like... Huh, I bet you saw some stuff you ain't never seen before. And therein is the moment where this movie shows its true colors of a woman who is a lesbian seeing a guy fuck her girlfriend and then have that guy say, that's how it's done. When Roxy's standing in the bathroom, she's wearing a leather jacket, knee high leather boots and these black like bikini leather pants. And she looks a lot like the daredevil biker uh patty bernstein from the jerk you know the one with the tattoo on <laughs> yes. her thigh that says slippery when wet uh-huh. 
Same tattoo I have, yes. Michael Douglas leaves the bathroom and he climbs in bed with Sharon Stone and she kind of kisses his hand and it's it's so sweet. And then the next morning, Michael Douglas wakes up and he's like, ah, what's going on? And he looks over and there's a note that says, the beach, see. <laughs> and he's like, ah, I can decipher this code because I'm a detective. So where would she be? The sea? That's how she signed it. No, wait. Read the first words. The beach. It's next to the sea. <laughs> so he goes He goes down to the beach house, and there he sees Sharon Stone and Roxy, and they're talking. One assumes about lesbian topics. And then Michael Douglas strolls down, and then Roxy just sort of passes him, and there is this swell of sinister music that accompanies the two of them crossing one another because she is, after all, an evil lesbian. Yeah, it it becomes this very confrontational thing. Like when when Michael Douglas sees her in the bathroom, he's like, "Hey, let me ask you something, man to man." And it's like yeah. that's uh, not how it is. Never mind. Like, there's no point in even discussing this with you, Michael Douglas. Like, my note in that scene was, you know what? If Michael Douglas was the only kind of guy there was, and I were a woman. I'd be a lesbian too, just out of sheer necessity. <laughs> when Michael Douglas comes down, he sees Sharon Stone. They kiss really passionately on the mouth, which is not the only way that Michael Douglas passionately kisses someone. And then he says, <laughs> like, hey, looks like Roxy ain't taking this too well. You and me being a couple and all. And then Sharon Stone says, hey, look, Roxy seen me fuck plenty of guys. And he, she's like, you know, there's nothing really that special between you and me. And then Michael Douglas is like, hey, look, you and me together. It's how I'm going to catch my killer. Which I was just like, what are you talking about? I don't even understand your logic. Are you saying that having sex with Sharon Stone is how you'll catch your killer, meaning that she is the killer? Which... If you follow that logic, she is a multiple murderer. And as opposed to gathering evidence and questioning people, you're just having sex and day drinking and doing drugs with your prime suspect. You are a terrible detective. <laughs> right. Well, he's a terrible person. The terrible detective part just goes along for the ride. It would be it would be the same no matter his vocation, baker, right. school teacher. Yeah, yeah. Right. If he if he were, you know, principal nick coran or whatever i'm doing a lot of cocaine um when he starts kind of mouthing off about like you know that's how i'm gonna catch my killer she's like look don't play this game you're gonna be in over your head real quick and he's like ah maybe i'll surprise you and she's like mm, probably not also you'll just fall in love and he says i'm already <laughs> in love with you but he follows that up with but I'll nail you anyway. And it's like, ugh, okay. How is Sharon Stone taking that? Is she's like, so you're going to nail me, meaning you're going to put me in jail for a crime that I didn't commit because she's wholly innocent? Or you is that a like a double entendre that you're going to have sex with me because we just had sex last night? Like, I don't even understand where you're explaining yourself, dummy. 
I'm gonna go get a drink. We cut to a country western bar where Detective Fat Gus, he's enjoying the music and dancing and he's wearing a cowboy hat and he's really doing his best to get into the five-timers club by beating the old 96er steak challenge yet again. Fun fact, he's the only member of the four-timers club. Um, <laughs> Michael Douglas shows up and he, he tells Detective Fat Gus that, uh, that he had sex with Sharon Stone. And he also says that next time that he has sex with her, he's going to use a rubber. Gross. The best part of, of this scene... Actually, there are two parts. This is a fantastic scene. First of all, Gus is in a cowboy hat, which is fantastic. Also, he is super drunk in this scene. Not yeah. like, you know, I've had a few. He's like, I'm I'm a 12-pack deep into this evening. And he's immediately like, you're so fucking stupid for fucking her. And, and Michael Douglas is like, come on, let's get you some food. And he's like, that sounds great. The best line in this whole movie happens here where it is Gus bemoaning the fact very drunkenly and very loudly that he is Michael Douglas is having sex with this incredibly beautiful woman and he will never be able to. And he's like, I could get laid. I could get like some of these road hard skanks, but I don't want I don't want something like that. And one of the women in the background yells out. Don't knock it till you've tried it. It's the best line in the whole damn movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And and then Fat Gus goes into this diner across the street or whatever, where he's just like, You gotta you're got your head wrapped around her pussy. And it's like families like, oh my goodness, this drunken man is using vulgarities. I like that when he's saying all this stuff, he's trying to find the bottom of this diner's famous bottomless <laughs> chili bowl. Right. And has to stagger drunkenly across the restaurant to find a bottle of hot sauce, reaching over a dude reeking of beer and smoke from this country bar and just like excuse me need this hot sauce sorry pal it's the all of this is just glorious during this scene fat gus reveals that nielsen had fifty thousand dollars in a safety deposit box that had been only open for three months but then michael douglas was like hey I didn't even know Sharon Stone three months ago. None of this is adding up. So then Fat Gus is like, well, maybe Sharon Stone didn't give him the money. I, I, I can't make sense of this. I'm over here eating chili. <laughs> right. What, what am I, a detective? <laughs> <laughs> so, which which again assuming dr beth was the one who's doing all this three months ago she gave the file to nielsen so that he could give it to dr beth so that she could pay him fifty thousand dollars to get the file back i think the fifty thousand dollars was her attempting to like because he had had the information about her and the former husband and all that stuff for a year. Uh, so I think that was actually a payoff. And then maybe he came back for more or something or just the shit happened with Michael Douglas. And she was like, I'm going to take this guy out. And it, it only, it only yeah. looks better for me. So it, yeah, again, don't matter. Michael Douglas then is like, Hey, I got to take you home. You know, you're too drunk to drive. And then it turns out that's just a goof. They're just giggling about that because right. he immediately puts super drunk Gus behind, behind the, wheel the wheel of his car. 
This big caddy, too. This is plenty of steel. I won't get hurt if I hit somebody, boss. And yeah, and Michael Douglas just kind of grins and waves as, you know, Gus dangerously leaves uh, to travel the highways and byways of California. Filled with chili and steak and booze. (laughs) Right. Just, uh, you know, all American up, we call it. I did like in this moment, it kind of feels like that the Gus is like, like, we've got all the evidence. We need to crack this case wide open. It's going straight to the mayor's office. <laughs> right. I've got, I've got the answer to who killed Kennedy right here, honey. You're never going to believe it. It's going to rock City Hall to its foundation. <laughs> you know what? We'll talk about it tomorrow at my retirement party. <laughs> Don't be late. Right. And be sure my dog Blue is there. He dies later, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, so spoilers, Gus is a done for. Michael Douglas then starts just strolling off, kind of chuckling to himself about the (laughs) illegality of his partner potentially running someone down uh, because of booze. He's going to have a stroke before he kills someone with his car. (laughs) (laughs) He'll have a heart attack before he ever has a stroke. (laughs) Um, So he's strolling off. And then we see one of the fancy sports cars from Sharon Stone's driveway stalking him like Christine for a second. Yeah. And then it just runs him down. But it's like one of yeah. those Lotus cars, so it's too aerodynamic to really do damage. It just kind of flips him over. Now, he uh, he flies in the air, meet Joe Black style. <laughs> that is the best part of that movie. <laughs> see a CGI Brad Pitt just get fucking smacked. But then following this, we get a car chase through San Francisco that is, let's be honest, the same car chase you've seen in every movie that has taken place in San Francisco ever. They're up yeah. or down hills. There's whipping and zooming. But then this scene ends with Michael Douglas and the Black Lotus in a game of chicken where the Black Lotus goes flying off a bridge and then lands upside down. And inside it is Roxy. And she looks like a million bucks when they pull her out of the car. But she's dead. None of the cops that show up at the crime scene, none of them believe uh, Michael Douglas's line of horseshit about what happened. He's like, you know. You, know, you see, sir, we were on our way to the bingo party. <laughs> the got all fouled up, and this lesbian drove off the bridge, and now she's dead. So It's suspicious, to say the least. And again, it's a, just a situation where every time somebody dies, Michael Douglas is right there in the middle of it. Because, in theory, he is being set up by uh, Dr. Beth for being a terrible rapist. And we should yeah. all be rooting for this to happen to him. <laughs> True or not, like, he needs to be off the streets. He needs to be put away. You know, if you got to drop a little crack in his sneaker or something at the gym, whatever you got to do to set this man up, get him behind bars. Dr. Beth is the hero of this film. Yeah, the the tragic hero. (laughs) So, yeah, the lieutenant is once again displeased that Michael Douglas is once again related to somebody dead at the scene of a crime. Right. And... Then he shows up to a hearing, Michael Douglas does, with uh, Dr. Beth and the asshole uh, from Sin of a Woman, uh, who was had the big speech about bared men. He asked about uh, Michael Douglas's childhood. He's like, when you think of your childhood, is, is it a good or a bad uh, memory? And Michael Douglas then gives, I'm not going to do the voice for this because I can't. He then gives a list of five reasons he's not crazy, okay? And let's just take them one by one. 
Number one, he doesn't remember how many times he jerked off as a kid, but it was a lot. It's at least not incriminating, right? This conversation, he's been talking to these medical professionals for no less than 15 seconds before he starts spouting off this shit. Right, before he just launches straight into rage. Number two, he didn't hate his dad, even when he knew what he and his mom were doing in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Mm, uh, all right, I'm fine. Keep going. They get better. N- number three is the one <laughs> that, I'm, that I couldn't be more divergent on. <laughs> he says, I don't look in the toilet before I flush. It's like, well, then what are you doing living, man? How are you not eyeballing that? Didn't you see that last Emperor movie where they could tell how healthy the Emperor was by what the stool looked and smelled like? You gotta eyeball it every now and again. What if you got worms? Huh? What if you got blood? Right! What if it looks like rice? That ain't good. That's probably larva or something. You gotta look. Then, number four, I haven't wet my bed in a long time. How long? That... (laughs) That seems like a a real lie of omission. And then number five, how about you all go fuck yourselves? (laughs) Undermining all the previous four, even if at least two of them hadn't been crazy. He's a charmer. Immediately he's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, I'm out. And then (laughs) walks out of this, the hearing, the hearing to decide whether or not he's fit to be a police officer. Beth then chases after him. And is like, oh my God, are you having sex with her? Is that is that why you're so crazy right now? And <laughs> he's like, I want to know what your interest in all this is, huh? What do you got? She's not a manipulator. You're a manipulator. Uh, you know what? I should probably be looking at you as a suspect in these murders. Har har. What a laugh. Can you imagine, Dr. Beth? The killer in front of me the whole time, as if that could happen. Right, and she's like, you know what? I feel sorry for you, and then just leaves, which is a great move on her part. It's the first time in the movie where I'm really on Beth's side. I'm going back up to Sharon Stone's house to see if I can get a looky-loo at her TTs and her hoo-ha. Which he does. He drives right up to the beach house, lets himself in, by the way, Uh after a couple of nights. Jesus Christ. That's a good way to get yourself kicked right (laughs) out of the relationship. (laughs) You don't just open doors with somebody you've had two, you know, in fairness, very athletic fuck sessions with, but that's it. Like, you guys haven't had a legit dinner out or nothing. Well, in fairness, he saw her naked three times before they had sex. Right, she doesn't know that, though. And him just rolling up into her house like that, if she weren't traumatized at this point, she would probably have something to say about it. Inside, Michael Douglas finds Sharon Stone, and she's really sad because her friend and her lover are dead. And then Sharon Stone blames Roxy's watching Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone have sex as the inspiration for Roxy to attempt murder on Michael Douglas but it backfired and now she's dead and the real this is like a real i don't know like like ball of mental yarn that she's trying to untangle and then michael douglas comes over and he gives it a real there there you're gonna be okay and sharon Stone says make love to me 
gross. <laughs> so these two have sex. And then Michael Douglas asks Sharon Stone if Roxy could have been the one who killed Johnny Boz, which none of that makes sense. He's a terrible <laughs> Right. He might as well have asked like, well, what about my lieutenant? What about him? Roxy is a lesbian. And in the beginning of this movie, we saw that Johnny Boz is having some pretty raucous sex with this woman. None of that adds up. Right. Hell, Michael Douglas might have been the killer at the beginning of the movie by that logic sharon stone says like no 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 like roxy loved me she would never try to hurt me like that but you know she says this isn't the first time that i've kind of inspired jealousy in someone like this and describes this whole single white female situation at college where like hey there was this girl that i I slept with one time and she started to dress like me and dyed her hair like me and it was really creepy he says hey you said you never confess and you just did because of my dick and she's like yeah i guess that's true i don't know what that says about either of us but i guess that is what what has happened here and she's you know for her character it is her showing some vulnerability where she has always been closed off before and in this scene she tells michael douglas that this person that she knew in college that her name was lisa oberman or as she liked to be called in college, Dr. Beth. And <laughs> right. so he, he, he kind of scribbles that on his little detective notepad for later. Hey, it's a name I can punch into the computer. We come back to police headquarters where we get even more backstory on Roxy that we didn't need. And it turns out that when she was younger, she was living in Smallville, USA, where she murdered her two ginger little brothers. And it turns out that uh, Sharon Stone has a kinship with women who commit murder. Also, this is another point where the uh, director, Scott, has some fairly graphic shots of those kids, uh, which was unnecessary. <laughs> for a director's cut give me more of the you know tna but how about you you keep the less dead kids right less dead kids is like i don't want to be aroused seeing pictures of dead children gross that's my point (laughs) so also outside uh, uh fat gus is like hey i bet uh sharon stone has what he describes as a magna cum laude pussy is that a play on words like cum laude like come loud i don't think we want to give gus that much credit i was giving the screenwriter more credit i don't think i think gus just spouted off words between you know tempura and his you know baskin robbins that's a guy who knows how close he is to a jack-in-the-box at all times Michael Douglas opens up this tiny detective notebook that he carries around and then scribbled on one of the pages is Lisa Oberman. 1983 so michael douglas goes up to berkeley and he gives them the name and they're like hey there's no lisa oberman here unless you made a mistake this is another of my favorite lines where he's like uh could there be some mistake and the bursar or whoever she is is like if there's a mistake it's not mine fuck you man we don't make those kind of mistakes at berkeley that's some that's some san francisco pd bullshit the movie then cuts to some random mansion i don't know where they are and sharon stone is there with hazel hopkins you know the old lady who killed her whole family earlier and then michael douglas rolls up in his car and he gets out and sharon stone says like hey hazel this is michael douglas i told you about him earlier and hazel's like oh yeah i've heard all about you you and i have a lot in common we both killed at least three people in our lifetime you've killed four but i killed three but you know what, what, what was it like for you to take a human life and he's just like hey don't ask me those questions 
And then he looks at Sharon Stone and he says, there's no Lisa Oberman in Berkeley. And Sharon Stone says, look, shithead, I didn't say Oberman. I said Hoberman with an H, you dumbass. So like, I need to listen more. Talk less. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Double blackjack. So Michael Douglas looks up Lisa Hoberman. And it turns out that Lisa Hoberman is really Dr. Beth. And they show her old driver's license and her new driver's license. And in her old one, she's wearing this hilariously bad blonde <laughs> wig. It's real rough. <laughs> And so we cut to Dr. Beth's apartment where that dance class is still happening across the alleyway. It's terribly distracting and wonderfully hypnotizing. And then Michael Douglas comes in and he says, hey, tell me about Sharon Stone and how you were friends and how you dress like her and how you're the killer in this movie. And then Dr. Beth, she spins up some really good bullshit about how it's actually Sharon Stone that's making up a bunch of lies and she's full of shit, but this all falls flat on Michael Douglas. And then during her spouting off of nonsense, it doesn't really do a good job of painting a positive portrait of lesbians. It's it's very much that they are manipulative and evil and awful. I do like the fact that she ends her tirade about like, you have to stay away from her, Nick. You know, Catherine's evil. She screams, she's evil. She's brilliant. And that's what it ends with. It's like, wow, that's a real compliment sandwich there that you gave her. Except there's only two. That's more of like a compliment (laughs) open face sandwich, which actually she started with the bad one. So it's actually like a reverse open face compliment sandwich, which is a weird combo. And in this scene, Dr. Beth, she explains that she, the reason she changed her name is that she used to be married when she was younger, but now she's not. So kind of put a pin in that. The way she describes it is, I got married and he called me by a different first name and I just kind of rolled with it. That's crazy talk. Yes. Like that should get you put away right there. If I've like started dating someone, imagine this, but <laughs> if I said, Hey Chad, I just started dating the, the, the best girl. She's wonderful. By the way, I need you to call me Chris from now on. Cause that's what she calls me. And rather than <laughs> correct her, I'm going to correct every other human being I've ever come into contact with as well as my legal documents. Yeah, that would be weird. Why detective dumbass doesn't immediately seize on at this point and be like, wait a second. That sounds like bullshit. Right. Ah, never mind. Back at uh, Michael Douglas's apartment, Sharon Stone shows up and Michael Douglas says, I found Lisa Holberman, Hoberman, Hoberman, Homan. What's your name? Hammerman? Hammerman. <laughs> Abominable. Abominable. <laughs> Smingenson. Smingenson. <laughs> Michael Douglas decides he's going to go down and he goes to this evidence room somewhere. I still don't know where this evidence room is located. And he finds a report that Sharon Stone made once upon a time about Lisa Haberman. Haberman? Haberson? Henderson. Henderson. And then in this evidence room, he goes and uh, there's some, I don't know, like cop with him. And he's like, yeah, some evidence is missing here. It was checked out by Nielsen over a year ago. And those fines are so big. They're like, why does he have this evidence? And as I'm watching this movie multiple times, I still don't understand all of the details that they're laying out. We cut to Detective Fat Gus and Michael Douglas, and they're screaming each other on a pier 
and they're just providing a bunch of speculative evidence about the narrative of this film, and I didn't follow any of it. Did you? Uh, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, like, this is a movie, again, written in 13 days, fueled by Rolling Stones and cocaine. The fact that some of these threads don't really stand up to scrutiny is not a stunner. And But, like, so when Fat Gus and they're debating, like, best motives and, like, why would she do this and all that stuff. And it just, you're right, none of it matters and none of it makes any sense. One thing I really like here is that uh, Fat Gus uh, is like... Uh, you know, I don't buy this. And you got Tweety Birds flying around your head. <laughs> when he says uh, you've got Tweety Birds flying around your head, I just thought, like, I lit up like a Christmas tree. It's so stupid. The, uh, that's the thing about this movie. Like, it, every now and again, it's like, wow, Sharon Stone's really good in this. And then all of a sudden, people are saying the craziest shit, and it's wonderful. We cut back to Michael Douglas's apartment, and Sharon Stone is inside with a giant house plant. <laughs> and then Sharon Stone, <laughs> right. I got you a plant that takes up half your apartment. I hope you like it. Also, I got you a puppy because I thought you needed more responsibility. Sharon Stone grabs Michael Douglas's ass and then she just drops her coat off her shoulders and you see her naked breasts. And then Michael Douglas comes over and just starts pawing at her body. And then they start making out. And so these two have sex. And then they just sit naked in this window seat and they're smoking cigarettes because 50% of this movie, somebody's smoking or there's a cigarette smoldering in the foreground or background. Right. And he's just like, Hey, do you ever see Sharky's machine? <laughs> These do chit chat about how they should have a life together. And Sharon Stone says, well, this life could never work out because in that story, you know, somebody always has to die. And you're like, all right, whatever. Michael Douglas goes to some random hospital and he's looking for Dr. Beth's ex-husband, but it turns out that he was shot five years ago. One guesses that Dr. Beth was involved with the crime. There's a lot of unsolved murders in the narrative of this film, specifically in <laughs> rural California. So one of the best like uh, side characters is coming up where it, it's almost like a law and order episode where Michael Douglas first goes to the hospital and they're like, huh, boy, I gotta say, Dr. Joseph Gardner. Yeah, he died a, a couple of years ago. It was real weird when that happened. You know, there was a lot of talk about that. I don't know so much. You should talk to the police. Boom, boom. Yeah. And then the net very next scene is Michael Douglas talking to a chubby cop who's washing a car. Mm -hmm. Like, let's give him something to do, just like a Law and Order episode. And uh, and, and Michael Douglas is like, so tell me about the plot of this movie. And the chubby cop is just like, yeah, I seem to remember that murder. It was real queer, huh? It's real funny, you see, because what happened was there was a lot of talk that there was another girlfriend involved in that marriage. Uh, what with the doctor that got shot and uh michael douglas is like oh yeah the guy was fucking somebody else and he's like nah it was her she was the one with the girlfriend boom boom <laughs> immediately it was like dick wolf got his inspiration from these two back-to-back -back scenes and fucking ran with it <laughs> Maybe it turns out that Nielsen was actually a good detective after all, because he was the one that was rooting around trying to get some information on how Dr. Beth could have been the one who killed her husband because she was having a lesbian affair. You know those lesbians. 
You know, they're always killing straight guys and causing trouble. We have now regressed in our investigation to just investigating the investigation someone else did that was smarter. Right. And hoping that we can catch up to it. Michael Douglas heads uh, back to Sharon Stone's house because he's all excited and horny Mm -hmm. because now he can fuck her with a clean conscience, believing in his heart of hearts that she's not a killer. And instead, the other woman he was fucking, oh, scratch that raping right uh was actually the murder right and he should be thinking his lucky stars that he's not dead yet so when he gets to sharon stone's place there are galleys for the cover of her new her new book cleverly entitled shooter you get it chad yeah i got it (laughs) and the book is just printing out on one of those old dot matrix (laughs) printers and like michael douglas is like god it's taking forever (laughs) It'd be a page turner if the pages would print. Yeah, but Sharon Stone is like, hey, uh, thanks for the inspiration. Get out. (laughs) I don't need you anymore. And then Michael Douglas, he gets real violent. He's like, is this some kind of a joke? I thought that we were in love, you and me. But then Hazel Dobkins, you know, the older lady who killed her husband and her kids, she just sort of walks around this staircase and Sharon Stone is there with her. And at this point, I thought, are these two having an affair? Is this another evil lesbian murdering nightmare of a character in this film? But who knows? I think this was a real wingman situation of like, look, I'm about to drop the hammer on him in about three minutes. I need you to come down the stairs and give me a look that says like, hey, I got to do some shit. And then I'm going to excuse myself, get him out of here. And then you and I are going to drink some cocktails. In the next scene, Detective Fat Gus, he shows up and he's like, yee, howdy, partner. He's like, I got a pig skin and a poke. We got a raw hide on the dust trail. And. And like loosely translated, this dumbass, he got a call from somebody who says, um, hello, um, I knew both Dr. Beth and Sharon Stone when we were in school together. And um, I'm a mystery person. And you and Michael Douglas should meet me at the old abandoned office building tonight at midnight. And don't bring your guns or any backup officers, just the two of you and nobody else. And I'll give you all the information you need. Dumbass Gus. I, I, you know, he's trying. God bless him. But Gus is just like, I, I think we should go and you should come with me, but you can can't come inside because that's wrong so they they show up at this place it's like supposed to be sharon stone's college roommate and on the way there gus is like aren't you excited we are finally gonna crack this case open we're gonna get to the truth we're gonna have an unbiased third party tell us what actually happened between beth and uh sharon stone michael douglas is just like i don't care and he's like what are you doing you big baby like we're about to solve this case and he's like i'm sure stone i broke up <laughs> and he's just such a whiny little bitch about it and so when gus is like hey i'm gonna go in and and i guess solve the case or whatever while you wait in the car and he's like oh fine i'll be right here i'm gonna leave the leave the keys in so i can listen to the radio hate this station here on 89.3 it's all cure all the time yes <laughs> finally somebody understands me while the baby stays in the car with his bottle, Gus uh, heads up uh, into the building. He's going up uh, the elevator and the door is stopping. It's kind of almost a De Palma scene as well as a Hitchcock. It kind of reminded me of uh, yeah. the elevator scene in Dress to Kill. Except less suspenseful and takes twice as long. Gus is right up in the elevator and then Michael Douglas just has this like dead zone moment where he's looking at the building. He's just like, Gus! 
And because like, I paused the scene a couple of times, I'm like, did he see something that I'm not seeing? Because I don't see anything. No, he's just sitting there thinking about stuff. It finally catches up to him that right. maybe his partner going alone in a dark building is dangerous. Right. Good for you, Michael Douglas. Uh, finally catching up to the movie. So he rushes inside and, and the elevator's too slow. So he's rushing up the stairs. Then very dramatically, the elevator doors open and a woman in a raincoat and uh blonde hair uh starts stabbing the shit out of gus with an ice pick right and then michael douglas gets there in the nick of time to watch his old pal gus die and he's like oh no moment's too late and gus doesn't have the sense to be like it was Beth. before he dies he just Beth. there's a lot of blood in this well i mean you're paying rabatine for something <laughs> You know, he's got two <laughs> scenes where he can do something cool. Michael Douglas takes Fat Gus's gun, because remember, he doesn't have one because he's a disgraced police officer. And then he turns around and he sees Dr. Beth is now standing in the hallway. And she's like, hey, I, I got a message from uh, Fat Gus to show up here. And then Michael Douglas is like, I know about your husband, Beth. Do you still like girls, Dr. Beth? And she's like, what do you, what do you, ever do you mean? Do I like girls? He's like, take your hands out of your pocket. What's in your pocket? And then Michael Douglas shoots Dr. Beth in the heart and he kills her. Uh -huh. And then he comes over and he rummages in her pocket. And what does he find? It's not a gun. It is the Bart Simpson's keychain where he is still wearing a blue shirt. Bart Simpson wears a red shirt. This movie is shitty. And he seems uh, genuinely upset at the fact that he has just murdered his uh, occasional fuck pal. Who am I going to rape now if not her? A couple of things about this. One, when she gets shot, it's a good, like, I got not only stopped in mid stride, I got knocked back a little bit by this shot. It's a good stunt. Yeah, she's off her feet. It's a quality shoot. When the cops show up, Michael Douglas, he can't really explain any of this to his lieutenant. And then some other working detectives detectives show up and then they find the blonde wig and the raincoat and the ice pick on the stairwell kind of in a side hallway meaning that it was dr beth who killed everybody and then we come back to dr beth's apartment where all the detectives are there and they find a dance class happening across the alleyway which is both uh, distracting as well as mesmerizing and then they find the gun the actual gun that was used to kill nielsen that they say the the ballistics match on that. Right. Good job on expediting that match. But then they also find copies of Sharon Stone's first two books to show that she was doing her research. There are multiple clippings of Sharon Stone with Johnny from like, you know, entertainment tabloids, as well as pictures of Sharon Stone with her boxer husband. It is a trove of evidence that shows that Dr. Beth is the one who did all of this murdering and manipulation. Right. And in fact, the lieutenant actually says, as if to tell the audience, I guess that's it. Yes. Then we even have another scene where we're at the police station and everyone is just plugging in the last of the plot holes where it's like, hey, what about when she said that she got this message to meet Gus? And they're like, hey, we checked her answering machine. There's no message on the tape. The tape's never been used. Here's uh, video footage of her walking in the building. Here's footage of her shooting this person. Here's her manifesto explaining 
explaining how she did everything. Here's a videotape of her um, confessing to the crime. It's it, it it is detailed information of how this is the person who killed everybody and was the mastermind behind this terrible series of events. Right, and then we get the logical conclusion of this neo noir tale, which is, hey, these two terrible people have uh, you know come together. They have suffered through this thing. Uh, Michael Douglas, in theory, has learned to trust Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone has learned to open up and not be completely closed off. Like when he goes home, Sharon Stone is there. She says, "Like I heard what happened to Gus, and I heard what happened to to Beth," and she says. I the reason I can't be close to you is because everyone I'm close to I lose because that's what people do they go away then he solves her problem by hugging her and then fucking her right <laughs> and then it's like they there's the repetition of the ice pick scene where she's writing him Ford cowgirl and leans back and then she just falls forward again and then there's another fake out that's the same goddamn thing and you're like just knock it off like we don't need this all we need is them get into bed and there's a kind of a nice moment where she says well what happens next and he says well you know we fuck like minks we have some rugrats and we live happily ever after and she says i don't really like rugrats and he's like fine then we fuck like minks and we live happily ever after end of movie that is it that's all you need no that's not all you need <laughs> right because they got instead we got to fuck a little bit more mm -hmm. so we can have this stupid pan down from them fucking to the floor where under the bed is an ice pick and the music goes ice pick but it's michael douglas's house it's not her house is it his ice pick Maybe he's the killer. Yeah, it's so it just it you don't need it. This movie is four to four and a half times better by just removing that shot. I wholeheartedly agree. But but Chad, so that is Basic Instinct. A quick note about Basic Instinct too, which I have not finished as of this recording, but I will uh, as of the next recording. It is important to note that this movie assumes, uh, at least in theory, I don't know, I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, that Catherine Trammell was in fact the killer. Okay. And that she is she is caught uh, in England after she is in the car with uh, a, a sports figure who uh, drove off the road and into some water. She got out. He did not. The, there were drugs involved. So she is assigned to a psychiatrist to determine if uh, if she's a crazy person. And th thus the dance begins anew, Chad. And she uh, enters a game of seduction that is real stupid where the point I am at in this movie he everyone around him has been murdered and he is wondering who the hell could have done it and there's exactly two choices uh left in the film the movie is being narrated by sharon stone as she is writing her next novel so it's like you see this do doctor this psychiatrist running down the streets of of you know rainy old london it's like and so the doctor, his head full of conspiracies, was running down the wet streets. And you're like, oh no, this is all terrible. <laughs> so I haven't finished it yet. It's good and awful. It, it is certainly a much worse film than Basic Instinct. I, for one, cannot wait to hear how that ends because I'm never going to watch that movie. So I'm glad that you're doing the legwork for me. 
this movie kind of trucks along. I think it's really well paced. I don't think it. There's a lot of fat on it. It's it's goofy. It doesn't make any sense. It's real silly. I have a pretty good time with it. I think there are a lot of good supporting actors, and it looks good, and the score is great, and yeah, you know, it's kind of dumb fun. What what did you think though? What 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 is your take on this? I, I thought that the plot was an incoherent mess i thought that the the sex in the movie was very heightened and i was even watching it you know through a present day lens i thought that there were still some you know kind of shocking moments of of you know that a major blockbuster would have this much graphic sexuality in it you just you don't really see that in most modern day studio feature cinema parts of it i like i think sharon stone does a very good job i think michael douglas is playing michael douglas in it definitely better than the majority of the films we've seen this season and speaking of all of its flaws Let's talk about a movie that is almost entirely flawed, Chad, our uh, season finale. Our season finale is Showgirls, arguably the sequel to Basic Instinct, meaning that it has the same writer, the same director, and the same misguided sexual core presented in, in a way that is just completely off the mark. It's going to be great. Yeah, that movie is. is nonsense. Like more so than this movie ever was. The fact that it tries uh anyway, we'll get into it. There like that movie tries to whip a little message on you at a certain point and you're like, "Oh, we have been to too many dark places for you to try to teach right. me a lesson, show girls." It does not work at all. <laughs> so, um come back again next week as we wrap up this season of you can do it. And uh, we will uh, put a cap on this and put season six in the books with arguably one of the worst movies that, that we have ever or will ever review. I can't wait. It's going to be great. <laughs> Till then. <laughs>